Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is Michael Adams from Nothing But the Truth, One Man's Journey of Finding It. It is March the 30th, 2015. We're going to do part 16 of the Roman Catholic Islam connection. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I will start out. Uh, this is going to be a little different. I'm going to be doing um, a little expose a little bit on. Um, let's see, Walden Shabbat, and then, um, where is his name, William J. Uh, Fedder, it's like, he spells less than F-E-D-E-R-E-R, and as we go along, I'll explain why we're going to do this. Um, but first, I'm going to start off with a, an article that I found from spirituallysmart.com. This uh, Facebook page posted it, public posting. And this is uh, fbreporters.org. Kurt Waldheims. It's oh, um, spells last name W A L D. H-E-I-M-S, uh, Knighthood, the Vatican, the Serbs, and Israel. <clears throat> and uh, as we're doing this journey of the connection between Roman Catholicism and Islam, we see that there's uh, three major players eventually we will see that be in the Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, the Roman Empire, and it's two legs, the East and the West, Roman Catholicism representing the West, the East, uh, the Greek Orthodox Catholicism. Then we, um, that's player one. Then, of course, there's the Jews, uh, quote-unquote Jews, and then there's uh, Islam. But uh, let's look at this report. This report, I believe, was just posted today, if I'm not mistaken. No, it was the 29th. So it was yesterday, and um, yeah, let's see what they have to say here. Some interesting insights. A few weeks ago, a civilized world, a civilized world, was shocked by the news of the war criminal Kirk Weldheim, the man who had hidden his sordid past for years, who could not enter the U.S was awarded a knighthood by the Vatican. Then the news came that the Serbs had blocked a visit by the Pope on the grounds that the Vatican had been involved in mass murders of the Serbs during World War II. Is there a connection between these two developments? Let us look at the record. 
it was on September 6th that the New York Times gave prominent placement to a report giving the reasons for the cancellation of the Pope's visit in Sarajevo. Under the headline, the Catholic Church is accused of complicity in the killing of the Serbs, and went on to report Serbian anger, which is evident in the Bosnian Serbs' refusal to assure the Pope's visit, is essentially rooted in the events of World War II, so a papal visit might have been granted with uh, whistles and boos. During the war, Roman Catholic Archbishop uh, Zagreb al oh goodness gracious al Zuji Zuji something like that <laughs> uh, Septenek uh, greeted the installation of a public regime as quote God's hand at work and never publicly announced the onslaught of the Serbian civilians. The ferocity of this onslaught, which often involved conversion of Greek Orthodox Serbs to Roman Catholicism at gunpoint or their massacre in the churches, was well known in the Vatican. The Times then describes some shootings of masses of the Serbs by the Croats uh, or the Croats <laughs> whatever you want to say Croats uh, who were blessed by the Vatican <clears throat> not one word about the murder of the Jewish population was printed by the Times Sipsonik was elevated to cardinal by the Pope Pius XII and was responsible for installing his friend Father Cecilia in the leadership of the murderous Astagi forces. As unbelievable as it seems, Pope John II, during his visit to Croatia um, this week, did not shriek, shrink from the uh, praising Cardinal Stepanek as a national hero and a vigilant uh, true pastor of his flock despite his deep involvement during World War II in the mass murders in Croatia. It is equally shocking that this last day praise of a wartime cardinal was widely applauded by hundreds of Catholic priests and nuns who were in the audience. The Catholic anti-Semites and anti-Serbs of today are clearly unrepentant. They clearly do not lament the disappearance of their soul, of their soil of all the uh, uh, Sephardic, Sephardic Jewish community that were descendants of the Jewish refugees from the Spanish expulsion in 1492. It is significant that the following days, and in the following days, the New York Times never again featured the true background of the Serbs' disdain for the a pope, papal visit. Excuse me. 
but changed its emphasis totally. Now, the reason given is simply the fact that fighting is still going on in the area and that it is unsafe for any travel there. Eventually, New York Times, which has an unbroken record of whitewashing any enemy of the Jews, uh, whether Arafat, Farrakhan, or the Pope, was forced by uh, its Catholic friends to censor any further reminder of one of the worst chapters in the murderous history of the Holocaust. What really happened? Soon after the Germans invaded and occupied Yugoslavia in 1941, they separated Croatia from the rest of the country and established a Nazi puppet government there, which was placed under the direct jurisdiction of the Vatican. Thus, Croatia and Slovakia became the only two countries during the Holocaust which were ruled under direct order of the Church. It is therefore significant that no other Nazi-ruled country rushed as fast and as thoroughly to carry out the mass murders of Jews as did Slovakia under the Bishop uh, Tizo and, and Croatia under a number of highly positioned Catholic clergymen who had the blessings of Pope Pius XII. The reason for this zeal was, of course, that the Catholics... That through the Catholics, the killing of Jews was a religious matter, not a political ideology, or not politically, a political ideological one, as under other Nazi rule countries. In the in the few cases, that happens all the time when I do the recording. <clears throat> okay, where am I at now? All right. Um, the reason for the zeal was, of course, that the Catholics were killing the Jews as a religious, not a political, ideological one, under where other Nazi-ruled countries, uh, in a few cases, where the Jewish community leaders, including venerable rabbis, were given access to the ruling cardinals and archbishops uh, in Croatia, they were given the cold-blooded answer that because the Jews have killed Jesus, they deserve death. <clears throat> the Catholic rulers of Croatia put before the Greek Orthodox Serbian population an alternative conversion to the Roman Catholicism or death. The Jews were not to give such an alternative. Were, were not given such an alternative. Their fate was one death by mass killings. The church-approved government of uh, anti-public um, formed the so-called Ustashi, roughly equivalent to the German SS. The worst uh, excesses, excesses by the Ustashi were perpetrated under Father uh, Dragunov and the Bishop Ivan Sarek, or Sarek, and the later called the hangman, the Serbs and the Jews. Um, synagogues were raised, concentra concentration camps for Jews were established, 
where they were uh, either massacred on the spot or deported to Auschwitz for gassing. Of the 20,000 Jews, less than 1,000... I think they're supposed to be 1,000, but they put an extra zero there, so they survived. He's zero. This 1,000 are supposed to be 10,000. I don't know, but he put four zeros there, but the comma's in the wrong place, so I'm going to go with 1,000. The massacre were further aggravated by the arrival of uh, ex-Mafti of Jerusalem, Hajj Amin al-Husseini, who had been Hitler's favorite guest in Berlin. He organized the Muslim SS division of some 20,000 Bosnian Muslims who carried out atrocities against Jews throughout Yugoslavia. This is the man who kinsman today, um, Gazelle al-Husseini, and Yazir Arafat al-Husseini are intent on completing their relatives program of annihilation of the Jews. Here is where Kurt Waldheim comes in. Waldheim was a key German officer in the area of the worst massacres, especially in 1942 when he was involved in the deportation to Auschwitz of some nine surviving Jews, he helped the mass murderer and Anton or anti Pavlik, the Pope blessed head of the government, in carrying out the ferocious the ferocious plans of mass murder to such an extent that Pavlik awarded Waldheim one of the highest decorations, the Medal of Oak Leaf Clusters. This relationship continued deep into the post-war era. All the mass murderers of Croatia were sought by the Allies as war criminals. Somehow, the leading ones among them vanished without a trace. There was evidently a well-organized so-called rat line, which helped spirit the criminals to safety in the Vatican and then via Austria, to South America, Australia, and other distant places where they could go into hiding. Walheim was without doubt a principal in assuring their safe escape, and this could, of course, only have happened with the full cooperation of Vatican. Cardinal Montani, later Pope Paul VI, was a leading figure in the scheme, that scheme. There can be no doubt that all these terrible events would come out in connection with their planned visit by the, the present Pope to Serbia, especially as his first stop would have been Croatia, where the Astasi have made a comeback by glorifying their leaders and their deeds during the Holocaust. This, of course, brought Waldheim's role during World War II back into focus. My hunch is that the Vatican was keen to buy his silence about the sordid role the Vatican had in the mass murders by conferring 
a covenant knighthood on him. And sources from a man, Fred Helm, man.com. Anyway, so it's M A N F R E D L E H M A N N dot com. Anyways, so here we go. We see something else. Has has things really changed? Or once again, is a thin veneer been painted over the Vatican and the papacy, the Pope, to make people think that things have changed? Anyways, did you know anything about that? I didn't know much about that. I had no idea about the uh, dispute that was going on in Serbia and that uh, Pope Francis had a plan to go visit the, there and it was ended up having to cancel it because it brought up all the... Um, the wounds and the past. So now, yeah, we're, we're of course we're doing this series, you know, um, the Roman Catholic Church and its connection with Islam, and um, we're going to look at this guy Walden Shabbat a little bit. Um, Walden Shabbat is an interesting character that showed up right after 9/11 and has been propped up by the government um, and um, it's gone around throughout the churches in the United States uh, promoting his filth, his distortion and his lies about what's really going on. Just to let you know, he calls himself a Christian but actually he's a Roman Catholic. His son is a Roman Catholic too and, um, and this article from ChristianInBeliefs.org in Times Decession False prophets Walden Shobet is a fraud. You'll find also some uh, postings from the Sun um, uh, defending the Roman Catholic Eucharist, the Virgin Mary in warfare, um, a defense of Catholic icons, praising the saints. Is in the Bible, he says. This is the Shabbat's son, Walden's son. Uh, and he says here, Virgin Mary will be with Christ at the second coming. Um, you can go online and read more about that. Um, but what's interesting is all these folks are the ones who are doing the most sable rattling. I'm discovering are Roman Catholics, quote unquote, the Christian right. And um, it is quite disturbing that a lot of quote unquote Protestants, who well, you know, whatever, whatever that means at this point. Uh, let's face it: the Protestant Church did not take it at all. They separating itself from Rome. Had nothing to do with the Sabbath, and had something clearly to do with the fact um, that they never completely separated from the false traditions and practices of Rome. Um, the icons, the idol worshiping, um, etc. So, Rome, the leadership as far as the Protestant Church uh, for many hundreds of years now has been. Uh, Rome has you know, been in control. So, anyways, Walden is Roman Catholic, like his wife, and he points to Islam as the enemy, 
to deflect the blame. This is from the article from uh, David McHale. Um, the blame from the Roman Catholic Church, which the Protestant reformers rightly identified as the Antichrist, Peace and Revelations, little under Daniel, and office of the papacy, the son of perdition. Radical Muslims are the enemy, to be sure, but they are ultimately controlled by the Jesuits of Rome through the CIA. Of course, Walden isn't telling you about that. Uh, Wikipedia, the Jerusalem Post-CNN, Military Religious Freedom Foundation reporter, uh, Elaine Fleming, uh, We Are, WideAndAwake.org, and many others are all proclaim that Walden Shabbat is a fraud who is making lots of money by promoting his hate towards Muslims. Many Christians are embracing his message because some Muslim leaders oppose the Zionist state of Israel. We've already talked about, we'll keep on talking about Christian Zionism and how it's not found in the Bible, it's not biblical, and who's been uh, behind it all. Uh, because some radical Muslims are killing Christians. The deceiver is pitting Christians against Muslims and Muslims against Christians. The enemy is pushing the world towards World War III, which will pit Christian America and Israel against Muslim countries, where many on both sides are killed. The enemy is causing strife between the religions, so the New World Order, the people will so that in his new world order, the people will long for a new world religion that joins everyone together in the name of peace. The deceiver is using people like Wall and Shabbat to promote hatred towards Muslims, which will lead the world into World War Three. The Muslim countries and Israel will attack each other. The re- uh, reporter um, Elaine Fleming has researched uh, Walden extensively and interviewed many of his family members. She learned from one of Walden's many Palestinian-American relatives, um, Kamal Yunus, who checked who checked his facts with other relatives, and every one of them agreed that Walden and Walden's entire biography is a manufactured fabrication. His handlers have taken one point and have twisted it and built up a fictional story. And I noticed a lot of people end up doing this. I know people in my life who do the same thing. And I know in the past when I, I did the same thing too, but... Um, I think we're trained to do this in some way, aren't we? To lie about ourselves, exaggerate our self-importance. Anyways, but the reason why, of course, this man's doing it is for money, 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 money. The biggest act of terror he ever committed was to glue Palestinian flags on the street posts. But when he was in jail, he met someone who invited him to join a group against Israel. In 1977, Walden and his friends put packages behind a bank, but there were no explosives in it. Wallen claimed in CNN that he met Sheikh Jamal and was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood and claimed that he had 
been a member of the U.S. sleeper cell terrorist group. All relatives doubt this greatly, but we do believe he is being paid big money to keep saying bad things about Muslims. None of Walden's relatives are extremists, only Walden is. It is apparent that Walden is involved in the smear campaign with uh, fundamental Christian Zionists to convince Jews and Christians that Islam is out to get them. This is Mikey Winston, founder of the Military Religious Freedom Foundation, calls Shabbat a scandalous outrage. In a telephone interview, Winston said that they had been tracking Shabbat for over two years and in the process of investigation contacted CIA, uh, Mossad, and other organizations. No one had ever heard of him. Mikey Winston said, it's an a- absolute outrage. Shabbat says that Islam must die. It's old school racist, racism and prejudice. Well, Weinstein expressed anger at the fact that not only had Shabbat been paid with federal taxpayer funds for his speaking appearances, but that he had also been uh, present at the event organization by uh, Department of Defense. When we look at his claims about being an XPLO terrorist, he is exposed as a fraud. And I, um, according to Wikipedia, Shabbat claims that he had been a Palestinian Liberation Organization terrorist, but his family says that he he was never in the PLO. Shabbat claims that he threw a bomb at a bank, at Bank Lumai, uh, an Israeli bank in Bethlehem, but the police and the Tel Aviv headquarters of the bank Lumai have no records of firebombing at it now demolished brother of Bethlehem branch. <clears throat> In addition, Shabbat's uncle also denies that such an attack took place. Shabbat claims that he had he was held in an Israeli jail for a few weeks for inciting an anti-Israel demonstration, but the police say that he was never held in jail. When the Post, okay, so the Jerusalem Post states that Shabbat has uh, profited from his story that he was formerly a Muslim terrorist who has rejected Islam for Christianity, quote-unquote Christianity, because we know that he's a Roman Catholic. When the Post about asked uh, Shabbat whether Walden Shabbat's foundation is registered, is a registered charity, he said that it was registered in Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania Attorney General Charitable Trust and Organization section, and it had no record of such charity. <laughs> Great. <laughs> when asked again, Shabbat claimed that it was registered under a different name, but that he was not aware of the foundation's registered name, nor any other details which were known only 
to his uh, manager. Dr. Joel Fisherman of the Allegheny County Law Library in Pennsylvania expressed doubt about Walden Shalbert's foundation donation process. He noted that if the money were being given to a registered charity, the charity would have would have to make annual reports to the state and federal government. Uh, the Jerusalem Post uh, Grill Shabbat over uh, his claims and the fact uh, that the purported bombing attempts was never reported in the media at, at the time. Cornered, Shabbat answered that he wasn't aware of any coverage as he had been in hiding for the next three days. This is despite the fact that in 2004 he had told British Sunday Telegraph that he was terribly relieved. He had heard the news later that the, that evening that no one had been hurt or killed by the his bombing. And then we will be listening to an interview on CNN, which was ironically, I call Catholic News Network, but somehow I guess they were given the green light to expose this guy as a fraud, I imagine. They were getting sick and tired of him milking them, plus the fact that <laughs> all these questions are starting to be raised about who this person really was, or is. <clears throat> Okay, let's see if I want to read that or not. Uh, Christians blindly trust Shabbat because he claims to be a Christian. Shabbat was born in Bethlehem, raised in Jericho as a strong in a strong Muslim family. When he converted from Islam to Christianity, it was through the Roman Catholic Church. Please understand that most Catholics believe in salvation by works through the Papal Church, which is not true salvation. If you read any of the studies on this website, then you know that the top leaders of the Catholic Church are the Antichrist, Beast of Revelation 13, the Little Horn, and the Office of the Papacy, the Son of Perdition, the Second Thessalonians. Shabbat is a defender of the Roman Catholic Church. In an article on his website, he said the Vatican has been slandered for centuries without a shred of biblical evidence. Oh, really, Mr. Shabbat? They call, uh, they call it the harlot of Babylon, the killer of the saints, the women drunk, of the blood and the martyrs of Jesus. By the way, Shabbat tries to say that the harlot is actually the Muslims. Goodness gracious. For historic evidence, they say that the Catholic, the Catholic Church eliminated uh, the Arians, the Cathars, um, etc., 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 all this, the Albigensians. But can anyone quote a single historian who confirms or proves that these groups were uh, Bible-believing Christians? This is what Shabbat said. At the St. Barth, Bar, Bar, Bartholomew's Eve massacre, tens of thousands of Huguenot Christians were killed. Paper Rome celebrated, calling it a great victory. But look at what uh, Waldo is saying by proclaiming that these people groups were not Bible-believing Christians. He is saying that it is okay for Catholic Church to kill people who they deem to, as heretics. Show me the Bible verse that supports that. 
the iron it's ironic that he wants proof that Roman church call uh, millions of Christians to be killed, but there's no proof that he was an ex PLO terrorist. Coadjutor is what he is. Anyways, you can read more to this article if you choose. Um from uh, ChristianityBeliefs.org and Times Deception, False Prophet, Walden Shabbat is a fraud. Shabbat. Anyways, we're going to play the uh, in, short in part part one of a series. I believe there's two parts. Uh, CNN, uh, their little expose on him, and I find it ironic that CNN ended doing that. Um, yeah, uh, Walden Shelvet, Jesuit infiltrator in the church. And you're going to find that this is happening all over the place. And so that's what part of this, part 16 is about, these Jesuit coadjutors, infiltrators that are infiltrating the church and are pushing this anti-Muslim thing and twisting scripture, twisting history in order to justify hating Muslims, blaming Muslims in general, and to help them in their start and creation of World War III, which obviously has started. So, let's see if we can get this set up real fast. Um, hopefully it works. Uh, all right, check it out. Keep it honest tonight, a fascinating report about your tax dollars going into the pocket of a man who claims to have unique insight on terrorism because he used to be a terrorist. Walid Shabbat is his name. He claims to have bombed an Israeli bank, been a member of the PLO who attacked Israeli soldiers, and grew up a devout Muslim who hated Jews. Now converted to Christianity, he travels America lecturing churches and police about the dangers of Islam, and he gets paid for it. His books have titles like God's War on Terror, Satan's Footsteps, and Why I Left Jihad. They were big sellers where we found Shabbat speaking at the South Dakota Conference on Homeland Security. He was there addressing more than 300 police officers and first responders. His message was American Muslims need to be profiled. All Islamic organizations, from doctors to engineers to students, ought to be investigated, and mosques in the U.S. should be considered terror centers, not houses of worship. He says terrorism and Islam are inseparable. You want them to say that Islam was hijacked. It was not hijacked. Islam is Islam is Islam. Well, full disclosure, one time or another, CNN and other networks have turned to Shabbat for his perspective on the war on terror, an apparent look from the inside. But keeping him honest tonight, we're discovering that Walid Shabbat's story just doesn't seem to add up. Here's CNN's Drew Griffin of CNN's Special Investigations Unit. I think we are at war with Islamic fundamentalism and Islamism, which stems from Islam. You know, no historian can deny that Islamists basically invaded Christendom. Walid Shubat's message is the epitome of good versus evil. He has an advertised pedigree that makes him an expert. 
Islamic terrorist turned ultra-conservative Christian. A U.S. citizen, because his mother is American, he is a darling on the terror circuit, the church and university circuits, and yes, he believes the war on terror is a holy war. He portrays himself as a man converted and on a mission. Once a Jew-hating, bomb-throwing terrorist, now a devout Christian convert warning the world, Islam is out to destroy you. That's how you recite the Quran. I know the Quran inside out. English. And if you meet the unbelievers, then smite off their necks. But what part of smite off their necks? The Americans don't understand. His message before a largely positive crowd of cops and emergency responders at this South Dakota Homeland Security Conference, trust no Muslim, especially those who organize. Know your enemy. Know your enemy. All Islamist organizations in America should be the number one enemy. All of them, Islamist organizations. Islamist society in North America should be focused on he is being paid $5,000 plus expenses to speak here with your tax dollars. He was also given a Rapid City police guard during his time in the city. A nice day's work. Judging by his website, where he highlights more than three dozen speaking engagements, Shubat gets a lot of work. Being a terrorism expert has become a cottage industry since 9-11. The Department of Homeland Security has spent nearly $40 million on counterterrorism training just since 2006. DHS doesn't keep records on how much is spent just on speakers. But some of the so-called experts who go around the country teaching, and in some cases preaching, about terrorism and the dangers of Islam are not quite what they seem. People, it turns out, like Walid Shabbat. The first thing I want to ask is, what was the purpose of your talk this morning to these cops and emergency responders here in South Dakota? Well, uh, being an ex-terrorist myself is to understand the mindset of the terrorist, number one. An ex-terrorist. It's Walid Shabbat's claim to fame. A terrorist, a PLO member, who bombed a branch of an Israeli bank in Bethlehem Square, throwing a firebomb on the bank's roof. The problem with the story, with a lot of Shubat's stories, there's no evidence for them. And despite CNN's many requests, neither Shubat nor his business partner have provided us with any. Bombings in Bethlehem Square, you specifically said you threw the bank was in, 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 in Bethlehem Square. You threw explosives. Yes, I did. On top of that bank. Yes, I did. No record. CNN's Jerusalem Bureau went to great lengths trying to verify Shubat's story, finding the general location where the branch of Bank Lumi once stood, but not finding anyone who could remember a bombing. We contacted the bank headquarters in Tel Aviv, asking officials to search records. No records found. And Israeli police found no record anyone ever threw a bomb at the branch of the bank. Why would the bank not have a record? Why would the, the Israeli police not have a record? Why would the Israeli police not have a record? I don't know. I mean, I don't know where you check, what dates, all these things. There's another part of his story that doesn't check out. Shubat says he was arrested and spent two weeks in an Israeli prison. There's no record of you being in prison. 
I think there'd be at least an arrest record. They held you for two weeks. Would the United States know you were in prison? If you were a citizen, well, how about me and you both? Even the school of your prison, and that's not the record. The record's on there. Okay. Would you be willing to do so? We did, and the Israeli detention center could find no record of detaining anyone with the name Walid Shabbat. Yeah. I mean, you obviously can see why people are critical of of your claims. There's a whole lot of gaps in your story. There's no gaps in your story. We don't have a bank bombing. And we don't have a terrorist, because it turns out Walid Shabbat, even on his own admission, was never charged. I was in prison for a few weeks. Was there a charge? No. I was a U.S. citizen, remember? I was born by an American mother. The other uh, conspirators in the act ended up in jail. I ended up being released. There's another problem. His family. In the neighborhood where Walid Shubat grew up, relatives say he was just a regular kid. And Daoud Shubat, who says he is Walid's fourth cousin, goes even further. There were only two banks in Bethlehem district, and they are Bank Leomi and Discount Bank. They were on Nativity Square, and Walid never had any connection with those two banks, not a close or a distant connection. I tell you this is out of experience. I am one of the people who are considered a responsible man in the area of Bethlehem or Betsahur. I've never heard anything about Walid being a mujahid or a terrorist. He claims this for his own personal reasons. It's true. He's saying he claimed this for his own personal reasons. What personal reasons? Well, there's a big personal reason here. It's called money. You know, Anderson, I have to tell you, classic investigative reporting, you follow the money. Like his background, how Wally Shabbat is now making that money is about as mysterious as his past. Yeah. The Wally Shabbat Foundation, is that a charity? Yeah. Wally Shabbat Foundation is part of the FFMU. And what does the FFMU do? Basically, we're in the information. And we do speaking, and we do also helping Christians that are being persecuted in countries like Pakistan. And uh, we, we help Christians who are suffering all throughout the Middle East. And how do you do that? None of your business. None of your business? That's interesting. Uh, our investigation continues tomorrow night, right? Tell us, what, what are we going to see tomorrow? Yeah, tomorrow, how he makes a business out of his expertise, how these donations to his cause end up with a so-called foundation owned by his business partner, and also the bigger question, Anderson, why are our taxpayers going to pay this guy? He can say whatever he wants, but where are the people vetting these so-called terrorism experts that are suddenly making a lot of money in this country? That's interesting. Uh, Drew, fascinating. We'll continue to follow up. We'll have that report uh, part two tomorrow. Thanks, Drew, a lot. Uh Okay. So, yeah, that was an interview and uh, expose on CNN involved sources. Um, so, yeah, something really to think about here. I'm going to close out of this. And then we'll go back and read a little bit of an article concerning Walden Shabbat. I said William, I meant to say Walden, anyways. <clears throat> and, um, you know, somebody asked me, to, you know, I thought it would be a good thing to interview the guy. And by the way, I did try to contact Walden Shabbat to see if he'd come on the show, but I, don't, I just needed to say he did not respond. And rightfully so, because I'm sure he would realize <laughs> that that was not going to be 
someone who was going to be in favor of him in his storytelling. And this article is from uh, Debbie uh, Schussels, S-C-H-L-U-S-S-E-L. This was uh, way back in 2008. And now it's 2015, and I'm still hearing people saying, you know, singing this guy's praise. <clears throat> now, we just developed some, at least some kind of credible uh, some facts that uh, do not support what this uh, Shabbat guy is saying and who he is, uh, how he... Uh, um, refuses to uh, be upfront about where the money's going and all that. And that's another example too about following the money, as it says in that report. It's a basic investigative principle to follow the money. Now, here's another little article. I don't know if I read the whole thing. Especially, I'm not going to read. <clears throat> The email exchanges. If you want to, you can go to this. This is DebbieShussels.com, and you can find that. Enough. Walden Shabbat. Why is Sean Hannity's fake terrorist harassing me? <clears throat> to my readers, I originally wrote a column below in February, but I sat on it and didn't publish it because I. I feel bad about exposing even this fraud and creep. Walden Shabbat, despite the fact that he is uh, plagiarized from me and harassed me under a fake name using his own email address, and despite the fact that his equally shady manager, Kevin Davis, by the way, is an Irishman from Ireland, <laughs> And then that goes back to this whole thing about the Irish teaching these guys how to, you know, the Muslim terrorists how to create roadside bombs and etc. There's a similar bill uh, and has, along with Shabbat, taken to thrashing me. But not that uh, the Jerusalem Post has also exposed the fraudulence and fakery of Mr. Shabbat. I decided I can't remain silent on who he really is and his behavior any longer. After harassing me, he tried to appear with me at a 9-11 event in Dearborn, and I realized I can no longer hold back. I thought long and hard about it, but it must be done. The record must be set straight. Years ago, when I first heard of Walden Shabbat, the man who claims to have been a Palestinian Islamic terrorist, I like I liked his story. Since then, I praised him in more than one entry on this site. That was a mistake. Walden has a picture of, of Walden Shabbat. Serial harasser, plagiarist, fake terrorist. In the back of my mind, I always doubted his story. It's not that I don't believe Muslim terrorists can convert to Christianity and see the errors of ways. I personally know of a scant few who have indeed done that. 
there are several former Muslims, then she names a few of them, comes to mind, and enlightened Arabs who are great orators with the important message so many more need to hear. It is that I simply don't find Shabbat's credible. And his behavior towards me is that of an unstable, insecure man who is upset that his shaky claims are being doubted. It's a chase it's a case, excuse me, of trusting my instincts and my instincts told me this man oozes arrogance, bravado, swagger, and not much else was a fraud and that this was a business for him, showmanship, and all he and he never provided a shred of proof that he did what he said he did in his former life. Still, I kept my doubts to myself, lest I be accused of enabling the Islamist, and because I had no beef with his message, a good one. Well, that's her opinion. My inclination was to ignore him and not waste my time and effort on this man. Sadly, though, that is not the way he sees things. For some reason, Walden Shabbat won't stop harassing me, despite his my request. He is he's annoying me and wasting my time, and he won't go away. So I can no longer look the other way. Mr. Shabbat took it upon himself, despite my praise of him on this site, to engage in a pattern of behavior that spanned plagiarism and obscene verbal abuse to nonstop barrage of harassing messages he sent me over the last two days under a fake name, Sandra Medina, <laughs> Sandra Medina. That's what I get for being nice and charitable to a snake. I got bitten. All along, I figured the emails I got yesterday were coming from Shabbat and one of his blind, or one of his blind believers. And sadly, I was right. It's those instincts. When you trust them, you're right. When you don't, you regret it. Shabbat made the mistake of emailing me using the email he and his son had used to email before with their real names. While some real terrorists are stupid and inept, like Richard Reed and the shoe bomber, most aren't not that stupid. After I asked Shabbat not to email again, he did it anyway, three times, and so far, including a fake letter to himself, he equally um, unhinged chief of staff and his friend, who else, <clears throat> but, uh, uh, see where who else, but another phony, Sean Hannity. Shabbat and Hannity have a lot in common, including that in addition to not selfishly plagiarizing others' words for personal gain, neither 
were ever Islamic terrorists. And by the way, they're both Roman Catholics. Did you know that? Sean Kennedy is Roman Catholic. In his email exchanges with me, as Sandra Medina, Mr. Shabbat never once provided any proof of his terror story, which I now believe with certainty is carefully crafted fiction. His position as Sandra is that since there is no proof that he isn't a terrorist, he he can get away with it. He might have had he not stolen a column of mine and told me and told me F you bitch this is what he said to her in the email isn't he supposed to be a born again Christian? No, he's he's a Roman Catholic. That's how they behave. <laughs> and now sent me these series of whacked out emails because his He's upset over a comment I made on my site to one of my readers about Shabbat's behavior towards me. He's like a jilted lover who can't take no for an answer and and move on. It all started a couple of years ago when Shabbat was uh, scheduled to speak at my alumni our alma mater, Michigan, University of Michigan. He was attacked by former Islamic terrorist and current ADC Midwest Chief Imad Hamad in a newspaper article in which Hamad doubted Walden's claims of to have having been a terrorist. Interesting couple, Hamad, a former. Islamic terrorist who claims he never uh, who claims he never was one and Shabbat who claims to be a former Islamic terrorist but apparently never was. (laughs) Each is using this uh, charade or charades for their own self and grand and grandizement. Though Hamad is also an excellent uh, ideologue too. Each has many dupes. And in response to Mott's claim, Shabbat put out a press release which plagiarized word for word my column on Hamad. I contacted Shabbat PR person Mary Zisquilla, Silla, or Sila, Sila, maybe like that, asking why my work was ripped off. Uh, Sliwa told me that Walden Shabbat insisted my name be removed because he didn't want to be associated with the Zionists. She agreed to change the press release and, and gave me credit, but did not after several phone calls. The next day, after complaining to her again, I got a call from Shabbat after I told uh, Sliwa I was going to write about this and Shabbat on this, this site. Shabbat told me a million different stories. First, he told me that he was a fan of my work, that he was upset that Miss Sliwa took my name out of the press release and ripped off my work. That it was her decision. Then he admitted 
he lied about that and that he himself made the decision to steal my work because I don't want to be associated with right with the right. Hello, question. The right is he is his entire audience of uh blind supporters. He agreed to correct the press release but never did. Then his chief of staff, a shady character named Kevin or Keith Davis who claimed to be an Irish Jew called to tell me that since they had been since they have been ripped off by others, it's okay to rip me off. <laughs> Later in the day Shabbat called me back and told me, you know, I called a lawyer and you can't sue me. D S I never said I would uh, so I don't have to give you cre- uh, credit for your work. I, I can take it and use it however I want. And then he says, F you, bitch. <clears throat> this is, once again, Brand claims to be a Christian. <clears throat> then he, ha- he hung up. The tiny correction uh, mentioning that it was my work was finally issued and appeared elsewhere where no one else would see it. They refused to correct the actual press release. I thought that it was the end of the abuse at the hands of this con man, Shabin, <clears throat> but I was wrong. He's not only a fake terrorist and a con artist, he's nuts. Here's an email exchange this uh, egomaniac engaged me in. Yesterday, pretending to be a woman named Sandra Medina, Mr. Shabbat, uh, Sandra Medina asked me to sue him, I mean her, and to post these. I can't oblige the first, but since I am tired of this, I just got another email from him her, it, whatever. <laughs> I'll happily oblige the second request. Does this sound like a real former terrorist to you? And then it's these emails. I don't know if I'll it's just here, let's read a couple. Debbie, below, are you saying that Walden Shabbat is a fraud? Are all his claims false? He was never a terrorist. This whole time we trusted this man as he spoke in our church, and he was lying to us. Can you please clarify this issue, Sandra Medea? As for Shabbat, Shabbat, he is a complete creep and an apparent fraud who is in this for the business aspect of it for himself. In my personal encounters with him, he completely repulsed me and entirely changed my view on him. I had praised him previously on this site. He stole the column I wrote and word for word on Imad Hamad and used it in a press release. When I caught him and pinned him down, he admitted to it but stated he does not want to be associated with conservatives who make up his whole base. And that's why it was okay to steal from me. Um, 
unattributed. He promised to correct, but when he did it, I called him and he send. He said, "F you," and hop. So, anyways, F U P. And then it goes on and on with these emails. So, anyways, you can learn more about that if you want to the the exchange that they had. But just another example of how this guy is not really up. He's not really who he's saying he is. And he's <clears throat> another example of the fact that this man is out there just for the money. Is he a coadjutor? He's definitely a Roman Catholic. And um, that's something to be concerned about. And this is kind of what the theme of this show is going to be about. Now, we've got this uh, somebody who's been listening to my sh- the series in the show uh, sent me a. Uh, via Facebook uh, a video called uh, The Real Truth of Islam by William Federer. And then um, she also then sent me, or I should say that, yeah, anonymity, business.highbeam.com and it says here, Reverend William Federer and Mary F. R. K. Federer Joint mass plant use obituary Reverend William J. Fedner. Okay, so anyways, Reverend William Fedner, a Jesuit priest in St. Louis, died Monday. This is September uh, 25th of 1995 uh, at St. Louis Hospital of Acute. Uh, it's like a monocytic leukemia. He was 74. His his mother, um, Mary F. Kinder, uh, Fettender, 99, died of infirmities also on Monday. So they both died around the same time. Um, Father Fettender was born and reared in uh, St. Louis. He attended what is now St. Mary's High School. He earned a bachelor's and master's degree in commerce and finance at St. Louis University. He also earned a master's degree in theology from the university. And it turns out that apparently this guy is the grandfather or somehow it's associated related to um, William um, The other, uh, <laughs> or the other William Fenner. So, anyways, so and uh, who is this guy, William J. Fenner? He was born in 1957 and raised in South St. Louis, Missouri. The fifth of eleven children, which is usually a good sign that they're Roman Catholic. <laughs> Graduated as well from St. Louis University in the 1980s, degree in accounting and business administration. He worked, included uh, Washington Carver, his life and faith, et cetera, et cetera. Anyways, so he's an author. Uh, and then um, Fenner has signed a November 2009 ecumenical statement known as the Manhattan Declaration, a call for Christian, for, of Christian conscience. Peter was an associate pastor in Word of Faith Family Church 
under the leadership of Robert Tilton. Now, if you know anything about uh, the Manhattan Declaration, as it says, is an ecumenical statement. Um, and uh, it's a Roman Catholic agenda and Embedded in, uh, and here, if you look at the, the Trinity Foundation, the Roman Catholic agenda embedded in the Manhattan Declaration. And so, this man signed an ecumenical document that is pro Roman Catholic and is obviously trying to bring real us back into Roman Catholicism. Now, we look a little bit more into this gentleman in his past. We see that he was married to his high school sweetheart, Susan uh, Mary uh, Misko, uh, May the second. Um, Sue received her a Jefferson reward from uh, for outstanding community service by the U.S. Senator Don or John Danforth in 1980 for being spokesman of the Missouri slash Illinois Red Cross Blood Service, working elderly and handicapped. She graduated with honors from uh, Core Jesu High School. And then, um, et cetera. So obviously his wife uh, went to a Roman Catholic school. Um, Let's see if things go further up here. So, yeah. So, and uh, by the way, uh, this uh, Bill Ferdiner ended up going to college, uh, in, of all places, Italy. Uh, graduated from St. Louis University High School. Graduated uh, from the University of Dallas, Texas, and then in Rome. Italy went to school, graduated St. Louis, St. Louis University degree in accounting administration. Now, I'm not saying that if somebody who is a Roman Catholic can't change their ways, repent, and become a true follower of Jesus Christ, but um, this man never did that. In fact, he is a um, uh, pastor. He signed and a public speaker that was apparently well-known. He ended up signing the Manhattan the Manhattan Declaration, an ecumenical statement, a contract. Where else are we can go with this stuff? Uh, Kurt Cameron, former evangelical pastor turned Roman Catholic, or Catholic, takes to TMB to make case for Santa Claus. Anyways, according to Christian News Network, actor and filmmaker Kirk Cameron recently invited a former evangelical pastor who converted to Roman Catholicism to TMB or TBN, excuse me, to make his case for Santa Claus as Cameron promotes his new film, Saving Christmas, which seeks to convince Christians who choose not to celebrate the holiday. Cameron shared 
a segment of the interview on his Facebook page on Tuesday in which he spoke of spoke with historian William Federner, a former evangelical minister who now identifies as Roman Catholic, sporting of uh, the liberal the, the Liberty University logo embroidered on his shirt, Cameron invited Ferdinand to outline his history of Santa St. Nicholas and other items found in his book, The Reality of Santa Claus, The History of St. Nicholas and Christmas Holiday Traditions. So anyway, so here we got a guy that uh, has uh, obviously always had Roman Catholic connections that once again was an infiltrator, uh, a Jesuit mole, a Jesuit, you know, what was he, uh, agent provocateur, whatever. But anyways, back in, in you know, after 9-11 and throughout that decade, he was instrumental, instrumental in going through all these different churches and uh, having a spinning a tale, a false history of Islam. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up now is that we've laid. We should, if you listen to any of uh, enough of the, the series of the Roman Catholic slash Islam connection, you realize that there there must be some kind of connection, and that the history is not quite what we've been told. Now, this man. He, he went through about the country giving tours and all these quote-unquote non-denominational churches and etc., sharing his twisted story of history. And, and um, I think that we need to hear this. I think this, if, if what I'm trying to present here, first of all, I want to say I don't agree with much of what this man says. What I do find it is, is a fine example of Jesuit sophistry and concentrate, and how this man twists the truth to manipulate our minds, to manipulate gullible, blind Christians into buying into his story. But they hope that facts question what the man's saying. And so, it's very deceptive. It's a Along, uh, once again, I'm not promoting this. I want you to listen to this. If anybody's actually listened to the series, and if you haven't, go back and listen to this series before you do this, or you can, whatever you want to do. I don't want to tell you what to do. But I recommend that you do go back and listen to this series and the connections between Islam and the Roman Catholic. Listen to what this man says. And does it does it gel? Does it jive? Does it add up? And you start to see that this man, who is a Roman Catholic, that pretended to be something other than most of his life, and then finally, once he did his job, came out in the open. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that amazing how many times that happens? And ask yourself. Is this man trustworthy? Is this man worthy of being heard? 
it's just, I mean, and the examples just are never endless, whether it's Chuck Missler or all his associates, associates, whether it's Nephilim salesmanship or as I shared yesterday with that video of uh, the Shekinah, Shekinah glory and how that's basically Mary, Queen of Heaven. And then, of course, he doesn't tell you about that and how he twisted these guys, all these guys that you, you know but you didn't know is that these men are trying to draw you back into the ecumenical movement and come back to Rome. You didn't know that. In fact, this whole war that's going on with Islam is all about that. And the ultimate goal is to draw us all back to Rome. Isn't that interesting? So... Anyway, so I'm going to play this video. Hopefully you get something out of it. What I want you to get out of it, what I hope you should get out of it, is the fact that this man is lying, he's being deceitful, and he's practicing Jesuit sophistry and concentry to confuse you, confuse the message, to convince you to come join his side. Another fine example. And once again, you know, you'll see a picture of him, and he's got a heck of a smile. I mean, he was a real estate agent, and uh, Made a lot of money in real estate. Got a winning a million dollar smile. And you know what? People that does not equate to a decent human being. That does not equate to an honest person. We have been deceived in so many levels. One of the things is, you know, they have a big smile on your face as you're going through life, you know what I mean? Make people happy. You know, you're lying to them and conning them. So, anyways, so we just learned a little bit about his history, just a little bit, so we know that this man is Roman Catholic, that he's, uh, he has a relative that I believe, and I'm not 100% sure, but I think it's either an uncle or a grandfather who was a Jesuit priest. His wife is, is, is Roman Catholic. He was raised in uh, uh, of a very large family of kids in St. Louis um, that he signed, once again, the Manhattan, and I keep remembering what that's called, the Manhattan Doctrine is what it is. Yeah, our declaration, excuse me. And uh, maybe when we're done listening to this, I feel like I will read that, what that actually is. And um, you really, you know, when you listen to anybody, question, you know, ask, you know, where do they come from? Are they being honest with you? Question what I'm going, you know, question what I'm saying. Challenge what I'm saying. See if it's, uh, I can back it up my claim. If I'm wrong, I'm right. And, you know, what's my motive behind all this? I'm getting nothing out of this. There's no uh, there's no fame or building a name for myself, for money. So why am I doing this? Hopefully you can figure it out. Anyways, let's listen to what uh, Bill or William Federer has to say. And uh, hopefully you don't hear too much of the neighbor's lawnmower <laughs> for it. Uh, that time of year or so. 
all time. It's time for clean spring cleaning. So, all right. <laughs> Bill Federer here today. I love he and his wife Sue. Uh, actually, they brought their whole family one time and stayed at a guest house that we had, and we just got to love on them and they on us. First time we ever met was up in uh, Wisconsin, I think, at some camp. We were together invited to go speak, and he's the historian guy, and I'm the crazy nut. And uh, But I taught the Ten Commandments, and I can teach them in 30 minutes, and you'll never forget them. And, uh, and he's a big historian of the Ten Commandments and this country's history. And so we just hit it off, and we, I think we roomed together, played ping pong, all that kind of mess. What do you do at a camp? Hang out is what we did. But we became friends, and ever since, all these years later, I love this man, and he's a good man. He's in places with senators and congressmen around the country. He gets to go places we don't get to go into. And uh, he's asked to speak and to be on boards and this, that, and the other around the country. And, and I just thank God we've got a solid man of God that's uh, just one of many in this country that's making a difference. Let's welcome Bill. Amen. Come on. Praise the Lord. God bless you, buddy. Well, thank you so much. It is a tremendous honor to be with my fellowship church family. I consider you family. And I want you to know how much I greatly respect and admire your pastor, Gary Clark. He is a great man of God and a great friend of mine. And, and join with me in thanking the Lord for Gary Clark. Will you do that? Well, I am going to uh, share a message. Before I do, I uh, wanted to mention I have some books and DVDs on the back table, and I'm going to leave immediately after the service to catch a plane so I don't want to take any with, with me. So if you buy two things, you get a third thing free. All right, a little plug there, commercial. So anyway, um, this is uh, uh, my presentation. I've actually given this presentation in the U.S. Capitol, the congressman and senators. I had uh, Congressman Trent Franks, uh, you know, contact me and his chief of staff. And, the, and um, so I get a chance to share this information with them, and uh, I think you'll find it fascinating. And here we are in beautiful Englewood with the ocean right here. But sometimes when you live next to a beautiful place day after day after day, maybe you sort of take it a little for granted. And it's not till somebody that comes from St. Louis, Missouri, on the muddy Mississippi, that comes down here and pastor drove me over the bridge, and I get to see the water, and go, oh, the sunrise, and this is so beautiful. We have Jesus all the time. And we Sometimes, because we have this beautiful Savior all the time, the temptation is to maybe just sort of take it for granted. When you see the other side, then you really appreciate Jesus. <laughs> so when I go through some of this, you're going to say, thank God I'm a Christian. Thank God for Jesus. All right, so let me, let me get into my little presentation here. And um, if I do my little clicker right, there we go. So that's my book, and I point out how most Muslims are not violent, but some are. And 
Nine of the ten worst countries, according to Open Doors USA, nine of the ten worst countries persecuting Christians are Islamic. And so why do these some Muslims persecute Christians? Well, they think they're trying to follow the example of Muhammad. So you read on the Internet the different imams of ISIS and everything, and they're saying that they are following Muhammad. And uh, so Muhammad was the best Muslim that lived. His life is called the Sunnah, the way or the example. And so Muhammad's life went through three phases. And by understanding these three phases, we can understand those who are trying to follow him. Makes sense, right? And so the three stages of Muhammad's life was he was a religious leader, a political leader, and a military leader. So this is the world 20 years before Muhammad was born. This is the Byzantine Christian Empire. Remember, Rome had been persecuting Christians, and then Constantine converted to Christianity, and over the next several centuries, the entire Roman Empire became Christian. So all of North Africa was Christian. All of Egypt was Christian. All of the Middle East was Christian. All of Syria was Christian, and all of Turkey was Christian. And so this is 20 years before Muhammad was born. And then it is attacked by Persia, and the Persians attack into Turkey and Syria and the Middle East and Egypt. So these were the two superpowers, sort of like the East versus the West during the Cold War. And so this was uh, the Byzantine Christian West and the Persian East, and they beat each other up and created a power vacuum, and into it came Muhammad. And so Muhammad's father died before he was born. His mother died when he was six years old. His grandfather and guardian died when he was eight years old. So he was orphaned and taken in by an uncle, Abu Talib, who was a merchant and would go on camel rides. So Muhammad would go with his uncle to different cities and hear about the different religions, pagan, Zoroastrian, Jewish, Christian. When he's 25 years old, he marries a, a wealthy widow who's 40 years old named Khadija. So now he does not have to work, and he goes out to caves and prays, and he starts his faith. Anyway, in Arabia, there had 360 different pagan gods. The most popular god in each town was the Allah for that town. And so the big town of Mecca, the Allah was Hubal, the moon god. And they had this uh, calendar begin with the first sight of the crescent moon over the desert, and this got incorporated into his belief system. And there was a rock in Mecca where, where they thought it had fallen from the moon, and they kissed the rock and walked around the rock and bowed to the rock. Muhammad kissed this rock, and it got incorporated into his belief system. This rock was in a square building called the Kaaba that housed all these different pagan gods. The Persians were Zoroastrian, and the Zoroastrians believed that paradise was filled full of virgins that would fulfill all the guys' desires. Muhammad heard it, and it got incorporated into his belief system. The Zoroastrians also believed in genies or jinns. These were spirits that followed people around, right, like little demons. And matter of fact, the word genius was not somebody with a high IQ. It was somebody that had a genie that told them all the answers. So the next time somebody says, you're a genius, you can say, no, I just have a high IQ. Um, and then Mohammed could not read. His whole life he was illiterate. The UN Development Program reported in 2011, 30 to 40% of people in Egypt today cannot read. So historically, the Christians and the Jews were the exception. They could read. They were called people of the book. And so Muhammad could never read the Old Testament. But he heard their oral stories called Talmud and Mishnah, and some of those stories got incorporated into his belief system. And then there's the Christian faith. And Encyclopedia Britannica stated of Muhammad, the gospel was known to him chiefly through apocryphal and heretical sources. So Muhammad thought the Trinity was the Father, Mary, and Jesus Nobody explained to him the Holy Spirit. There are Muslims today that think Christians worship three gods, the Father, Mary, and Jesus. And so when it says apocryphal, what are the apocryphal works? Well, 
The Infancy Gospel of Thomas is an apocryphal work written several centuries after Jesus by someone who knew nothing of Jewish life. It's filled full of errors and inconsistencies, fanciful little what-if stories when Jesus was a little boy, like he spoke from the cradle, he made clay birds and clapped and they flew away, and raised a playmate from the dead. Well, guess what stories Muhammad heard floating around in the desert uh, that Jesus spoke from the cradle, made clay birds and clapped, they flew away, raised the playmate from the dead. And so these got incorporated into Islam, and they are taken as fact. So there's no other place in ancient literature that these stories appear other than this infancy gospel of Thomas that no one then or now takes serious because it's filled full of all these errors and inconsistencies. But Muhammad heard it, and it's in the Quran. It's now taken as fact. So we can identify the beliefs that existed in that area of the world pre-Muhammad and see how they're reflected. Now, when Encyclopedia Britannica says the gospel was known to him chiefly through apocryphal and heretical sources, what were the heresies? Well, there was Arianism, the first heresy, and it said that Jesus was a little less than God. So Jesus was mostly man and just a little bit God. Another heresy was Nestorianism that said Jesus was mostly God and just a little bit man. And then there was Monophysism that says Jesus was man and God, but the two natures didn't mix. And then there was Docetism that says Jesus was completely divine and only appeared human. And then there was the Ebionism that says Jesus was completely human, yet still the Messiah. See how complicated this is? Imagine if you were illiterate in the desert, hearing all of these different heresies, along with the apocryphal works, along with the Jewish oral traditions, along with the pagan stuff and the Zoroastrian stuff. Anyway, Muhammad was married to his first wife, Khadija, by her cousin who was an Ebionite Christian priest of that heretical sect. So again, we can begin identifying the different beliefs that were there. Now, uh, uh, since Muhammad did not understand the Trinity, I found an easy way to explain the Trinity. If you read through the New Testament, most of the time the verse refers to God the Father. Not all, but most of the time, the prepositions in the sentence are to, unto, of, and from. And most of the time the verse in the New Testament refers to Jesus. The prepositions are by and through. And most of the time the verse refers to the Holy Spirit. The prepositions are in and with. And so there's a relationship between the three persons of the Trinity they're intimately united, but they're their own person, but they work together, right? And, and it's meant this tremendous unity. So, here are some verses. But he that doeth the will of my Father, all things are delivered unto me of my Father. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father, come be blessed of my Father. I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father. I came forth from the Father, comforter whom I will send from the Father. Pray to thy Father. I leave the world and go to the Father. Appear not unto men to pass, but unto thy Father. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And then he prays, our Father, who art in heaven, thy will be done. Then Jesus, the verses, I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. Unto him be glory by Christ Jesus. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation aboundeth by Christ. But my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. He which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus. And they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And here's the Holy Spirit. 
Comforter, that he may abide with you. Spirit of truth, but he dwelleth with you, and he shall be in you. You should be baptized with the Holy Ghost. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if it so be that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. For our gospel came not to you with word only, but in power and in the Holy Ghost. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, that you are now made perfect in the flesh? And so I'm sort of simplistic, and I tried to boil this down, and I came up with an example, a football game. <laughs> so God the Father is like the coach. It's his will that's going to take place on the field. So he's in the locker room with the circles and the arrows, and he's deciding what's going to take place. But how does his will get onto the field? The quarterback. The quarterback is on the sideline. He gets the play, and then he runs onto the field dressed in the same uniform as everybody else on the field. So he's, and what's the one player that gets to speak? The quarterback, he's the word made flesh. It's the word of the father, right? So he's carrying the play from the coach, from the father, and he comes in to the field and he speaks the play. Now, originally there was one player, the Holy Spirit. Now, you read the book of Genesis, and it says, and God said, let there be light. And God said, let the earth bring forth the creatures. And God said, let the waters from above be separated from the waters from beneath. And God said, let the, you know, the, the animals. Nothing was created without God saying. Well, what do you say but words? So there you got God the Father. You got the spoken word. And then it says that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. And so when the word was spoken is when the Holy Spirit brought forth life, right? And so now we are all filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is in us, so we are all players on the field with the Spirit inside of us, and we're carrying out the will of our Father, the coach, right, whose, whose plays are communicated to us through our quarterback, Jesus. Right? So can you say amen? amen. Now, um, so I, I guess I like football. Coach, pastor likes football. Coach Chuck here. So um, if someone would have taken just a couple minutes like this to explain to Mohammed that uh, the Trinity, it may have saved a lot of difficulty over the centuries. But anyway, back to our story. So his first stage of his life was religious, and from 610 A.D. to 622 A.D., Mohammed only makes 70 converts in 12 years, right? And so uh, he gets a little frustrated that very few are joining, and he gets confrontational, and the people of Mecca chase him out of town, in the year 622 A.D. So he flees north 210 miles to a Jewish city called Medina. The Jews are nice enough to let him in. They reject his faith. And so he goes into the minority pagan neighborhoods in Medina, and he begins to get a little following. He's sort of organizing in the community and gets a following, goes back to the Jewish leaders. He presents himself as a, like a candidate of change, and he says, I can rise above your partisanship and politics. And they make a treaty with Muhammad, and now he is a political leader, in addition to being a religious leader. And then something happens. Muhammad's followers in Mecca, they get pushy and argumentative and confrontational, the way some of his followers are today. They get chased out of town for disturbing the peace. They go north to Medina, and Muhammad allows them to rob the caravans headed to Mecca in retaliation for the Meccans chasing them out of town. So where Jesus said, if they take your coat and, and give them your shirt, Muhammad said, if they take your house, you retaliate and take their caravans. And so we see the caravan route. 
starts there in Cairo and comes down to Medina and then to Mecca. And so Muhammad had 300 warriors and they would rob the caravans. He had a whole chapter of the Quran on how to distribute booty from robbing caravans. It's Surah 8, chapter 8. It's still in there. And so uh, he had these warriors and they're robbing the caravans. And so there's two sets of verses in the Quran based on the two cities Muhammad lived in. The first city of Mecca, he was just a religious leader, and so those verses are a little more peaceful. The second city Muhammad was in, he became a political and a military leader, and those verses are political and military and more violent. And the later verses supersede the earlier verses. Right? So by way of illustration, in the Bible, we have an Old Testament with some violence in it. Moses and Joshua wiping out the tribes in the Promised Land. The New Testament, Jesus and the apostles did not kill anyone. And so what do we say? We're going to try to imitate the later example. Right? WWJD, what would Jesus do? And so the later example supersedes the earlier example. It's the same way in Islam, only in reverse. Their peaceful verses came first when Muhammad was a religious leader in Mecca. They're called weak verses. And they're superseded by the later political military verses in Medina. They're called strong verses. So the same way Christians want to use the later example of being peaceful, all right, and not following the example of uh, Moses and Joshua wiping out people, that did, it's in the same way in Islam, they say the later example is the one they're supposed to follow, and that's the more violent one. And so the Muslims that are killing and persecuting the Christians, they think they're following the last example that Muhammad left. So back to our progression. In the year 624 A.D., the people of Mecca are tired of their caravans being robbed, and so they send a 1,000 soldiers to protect their caravan. And Muhammad, with 300 warriors, defeats a 1,000 at the Battle of Badra in 624 A.D. This amazing victory convinces Muhammad to be a military leader, and he fights in 66 battles and raids in the next eight years before he dies. He even used the catapult when he attacked a city called Al-Taif, and when he was told the catapult was killing women and children, his response was, they are among them. So they got to be killed too. So suicide bombers today and ISIS killers over in, in Saudi Arabia and Boko Haram in Africa, they say that it's okay to kill women and children to advance Islam because Muhammad did when he used the catapults at Al-Taif. And since Muhammad is the best Muslim, Muslims today that want to be like him, they imitate him religiously, politically, and militarily. So it's an RPM, like in your car, revolution is permitted. And so it's religious, political, military. So there's freedom for all religions in America. But Islam is not just a religion because Muhammad was not just a religious leader. He was a political and a military leader. So our effort in the West to try to split the religious side of Islam away from the political military side is we're trying to split their prophet. Who are we to tell them only to imitate Muhammad's example when he was in Mecca and to ignore the example that Muhammad set in Medina, right? And so anyway, so back to our story in the year 627 A.D., the Meccans send 10,000 soldiers to Medina to stop Muhammad and his men from robbing their caravans. And Muhammad's version of roadside bombs and IEDs was he dug potholes and trenches all around the city of Medina, which rendered the superior cavalry of the Meccans useless. You can't charge your horses and camels across a field full of potholes and trenches while you're being shot at from the walls. They'll break their legs. So it throws off the battle strategy. Then Muhammad goes to some of the tribes at night, and he bribes them, and they slip away. He goes to some of the other tribes at night, and he threatens them, and they slip away. Sort of the Chicago politics, the bribe or the bullet, you know. And then it gets freezing cold for a week. 
the rest of the Meccans lose heart and decide to bring their troops home. And when the Meccans retreat and bring their troops home, does Muhammad become peaceful? No. There's a power vacuum, sort of like what we left when we pulled out of Iraq. There's a power vacuum, and Muhammad is emboldened, and he goes into the Jewish city of Medina. And remember those three Jewish tribes that let him in five years earlier? He gets offended at one of the tribes, confiscates their property, chases them out of town. Gets offended at another tribe, confiscates their property, chases them out of town. This set a precedent in Islam called Hudna, H-U-D-N-A, Hudna. It means when you're weak, you make treaties until you get strong enough to disregard them. So here we are pressuring them to Israel to make a treaty with them. Well, their concept of treaty is just a ceasefire to restock missiles. Anyway, the third Jewish tribe in Medina, Muhammad bottles them in their neighborhood for 25 days. When they finally surrender, he brings them into the market, and he chops off their heads. Six or seven hundred of them get their heads chopped off, then he sells the women and children into slavery. He did keep one of the wives for himself, Rehana. He ended up having anywhere from 11 to 22 wives. He had slave wives and concubines. But within five years of Muhammad immigrating to the Jewish city of Medina, there's not a Jew left in the city of Medina. They were chased out, killed, or enslaved. And within five years of Muhammad's death, every pre-existing culture in Arabia is wiped out. And so we see it's been a three-step process. Vini, vidi, vici. You know what Caesar's three steps? If you studied, you know, Latin, Caesar. I came, I saw, I conquered. That was what Julius Caesar said. Vini, vidi, vici. Well, Muhammad's three steps was immigrate, increase, eliminate. Immigrate into Medina as a religious refugee. Increase the number of your followers of those who feel like they've been victimized and those who don't like the Jewish leaders of the city. And then you eliminate the previous culture. You're right, neighborhood by neighborhood. And so there's a 1,400-year track record of this happening. Now, we heard the term Arab Spring. There's actually been three springs in the history of Islam. The first was the Arab Persian Spring that went from 622 to 1071. The second is a Turkish Spring from 1071 to 1923. And the third is the current Arab Spring that started in 1928. And so the first one would not have started without this little invention. Who knows what it is? Stirrup riding horses invented by the Mongolian nomads over by China. They'd ride their little horses into China. They tied a rope around the horse and left two loops hanging for their big toes because they would ride barefoot. And it would help them keep balance. Well, that invention the Chinese improved upon, and it made its way across the Gobi Desert to Persia. And the Persians made them out of metal with leather straps. This gave you more control in the saddle, and you were able to fight on horseback. And so the Muslims got these curved swords from Damascus called the Damascus steel. They're called scimitars. They're very light, like razor blades. And you can hold the reins of the horse in one hand and this very light sword in the other hand, and they literally could slice them one in half while riding at a full gallop. And so this is the U.S. Supreme Court chamber in Washington, D.C., and it has a lawgivers throughout history around the, the ceiling, and it has Moses and his ten Hebrew commandments, and it's got um, John Marshall, the Chief Justice, Charlemagne, and it has Muhammad with his Arabic Quran and his scimitar sword in our U.S. Supreme Court building, and this is Muhammad's sword. It still exists in Istanbul, Turkey, and we see this lightning expansion of Islam, and so Muhammad's general, Khalid Ibn al-Walid, was called the drawn sword of Allah because he was undefeated in a hundred battles. And we see that they conquer Syria. Did you know Syria was the first country to completely be Christian? It was evangelized by the Apostle Paul. And Antioch, Syria, is where the name Christian was invented. And the Syrian Christians evangelized east like the Greek and Romans did west. 
And so the Syrians evangelized into Persia, India, Mongolia, even China during the Tang Dynasty. You had a thriving Syrian Christian community that lasted all the way to the Wan Dynasty, you know, after Kublai Khan. But it was largely wiped out by a Muslim leader named Tamerlane that killed 17 million people and wiped out the church through Central Asia, like ISIS, right, driving out the Christians out of Syria and Iraq. Well, in the 1300s, it was Tamerlane and his Muslim army driving out the Christians. And there's more ancient Christian writing in the Syrian language of Syriac than any other language other than Greek and Latin. And these Syrian Christians invented the hospitals. They invented universities uh, even before the Italians did. But in the year 638 AD, the Muslim Caliph Umar invaded Syria and began to conquer it. And then the Muslims conquered Jerusalem, which had been a Byzantine Christian city for three centuries since Constantine. And Yemen down there was a Jewish kingdom. And then, of course, Egypt was evangelized by Mark that wrote the Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Egypt was Christian for six centuries. And then there used to be 250 Catholic dioceses along North Africa in the 7th century. Morocco, Algiers, Tunisia, Libya, that was all Christian. And then in the year 711, 80,000 Muslims invaded Spain, Corsica, Sicily, Sardinia. And this was the largest political military empire in the world. When the Muslims conquered Egypt, they destroyed the library at Alexandria, the oldest library in the world. And they held back their ships of papyrus, which was a reed that grew along the Nile Delta in Egypt, and they would lay it out and dry it out, and it was paper. That's where we get the word paper from papyrus. But when the Muslims held back the ships of papyrus, there was a paper shortage in Europe. Literacy declined. They wrote fewer books, and we call this the Dark Ages. So Islam is partly responsible for the Dark Ages. And then they decided to invade Spain. And they're on horseback with their Arabian horses and stirrups and scimitar swords. The Spaniards are still fighting on foot with heavy metal swords. And in 10 years, the Muslims conquer all of Spain. They cross the Pyrenees Mountains. They conquer southern France. And they're finally stopped outside of Paris at the Battle of Tours in 732 A.D., exactly 100 years after the death of Muhammad in 632 A.D. They go from Arabia to Paris in 100 years. It's a military campaign. And so Pope Gregory puts out a plea that anybody that could fight should join Charles Martel. He was the grandfather of Charlemagne, Charles Martel. He gets 30,000 volunteers in Tours, France, and he puts them on top of the hill, and the Muslims charge into the, the, the soldiers and get stuck because there were 30,000 guys in one square. And then Martel had prearranged for some of his men to sneak into the Muslim camp and free the captives. Because the Muslim warriors fought for religion, but they also fought for plunder. You could come away from battle with four wives, plus as many extra women as your right hand possesses. They just don't have the status of a wife. So they're slave wives and concubines. Now the sultan got a fifth, because that was Muhammad's portion of the booty. So many sultans had a thousand wives. And anyway, as the Muslim warriors left the fighting to go try to catch their you know, captives again, the Muslim commander at the Battle of Tours, um, uh, 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 Abdul Ramahansi, he said uh, he saw the warriors leaving, uh, Abdul Rahman. He tries to rally his men back, and he gets distracted. He gets surrounded. He gets killed. And so now that the Muslim commander is killed, the Muslim warriors can't decide who their next commander is going to be. And so they decide to take their booty and go back to Spain. That was the Battle of Tours in 732 A.D., exactly 100 years after the death of Muhammad in 632 A.D. They went from Arabia to Paris in 100 years. It was a military campaign. 
Uh, why is this battle important? Because Charles Martel had the largest army in Europe at the time. If he had not been successful, the Muslims would have conquered all of Europe, and we would be speaking Arabic right now, because German, French, and English would have never developed as languages. We would be like Egypt, where the Muslims cut out the tongues of anybody caught speaking Coptic, and so that, that's how they eradicated the Egyptian Coptic language in Egypt. Anyway, it takes 700 years to drive the Muslims out of Spain. And now the word Islam means submission to the will of Allah. A Muslim is one who has submitted to the will of Allah. And Islam believes there will be world peace when the whole world submits to the will of Allah. So Islam is a religion of peace. It's just their definition of the word peace is different than ours. Our definition of the word peace is different groups getting along. Their definition is when everyone in the world submits to the will of Allah, there'll be peace. So for them, world peace means world Islam. And so Lincoln gave a quote. He said, we all declare for liberty, but in using the same word, we do not all mean the same thing. <laughs> we all want peace, but in using the same word, we don't all mean the same thing. And so in Islam, the world's divided in two halves, the half that is submitted to the will of Allah and the half that is in the process of submitting to the will of Allah. The half that's submitted is called the House of Islam, the Dar al-Islam, and the half that's in the process is called the House of War, Dar al-Harb. It's supposed to be at war because it's transitioning to submitting to being the House of Islam. Now, what about moderate Muslims? Moderate Muslims believe the world will submit to Allah later. Maybe at the end of the world, maybe it's in the distant future, maybe it's even figurative. And since it's so far off in the distant future, they just want to live their lives and have their family, and they have no problem having you as a kafir infidel as a neighbor. Now, the fundamental Muslim, on the other hand, they think the world is supposed to submit to Allah now. And they're really excited, and they want to help make it happen. Now, the dilemma for us in the West is the more we bend over backwards in unprecedented ways to show ourselves tolerant, the more the modern Muslim begins to rethink and says, wait a second, this has never happened before. Maybe the world is, in fact, submitting to Allah now rather than later. And so they gravitate from the future peaceful modern camp into the fundamental now camp, which is the violent camp. So all of our efforts to show ourselves really, really tolerant is actually creating more violence. Or our foreign policy has been sort of like a football game where uh, the other team's playing tough, and so we get in the huddle. We tell ourselves, tell you what, let's let them get a first down. They'll get it out of their system, and they'll, they'll let us get a first down. Well, we let them get a first down, and they're playing harder. So we tell ourselves, okay, tell you what, let's let them get a touchdown. Then certainly they'll be nice, and they'll let us get a touchdown. We let them get a touchdown, they're playing harder. So we say, let's let them get another touchdown and another, another. And the more we let them score, the more they're getting excited and they're packing out the stadium and they're on their feet cheering. And we're like, why aren't they letting us get a chance? I mean, that's been our foreign policy. Anyway, so, uh, so it takes 700 years to drive the Muslims out of Spain. Um, this is a movie that Charlton Heston did. I met Charlton Heston, by the way, when I ran for Congress. He was the head of the NRA. I got my picture taken, shaking hands with him, and we printed 10,000 of them and spread them all across the 3rd District. Anyway, um, so uh, he was playing El Cid, who was a Spanish commander, and uh, they're fighting, and they're driving the Muslims back, but he's wounded and dying. And, uh, but they need one more charge. And they tell him, you're not going to live. And so he says, strap my body to the horse with a board up his back. They open the barn doors. They slap the horse. He goes off riding to charge, and all his men charge with him, and they win the battle. And afterwards, they're all celebrating. Where's El Cid? He's over there by himself, and he's still tied to his horse. Dead. You know. Anyway, it's one of those romantic chick flicks. You know. <laughs> anyway, um, 
So they drive the Muslims out of Spain, and then they had slavery. While they were in Spain and Portugal, they enslaved thousands of Europeans, but, and they enslaved millions. Uh, there was entire Catholic orders in Europe called the Trinitarians, and the head of the order was called the Ransomer. And they would have collections from church services to raise money to go to North Africa to try to ransom back your friend who was captured from a Greek island or an Italian coast. There were whole sections of the coast of Italy where there was not a child, a woman of childbearing age for generations. Because along the water, the Muslim boat pirates would come up and they'd just come ashore and they'd just grab all the women they could and then sail away. You know, in 846 AD, the Muslims, and 10,000 of them, invaded Rome, Italy, and they trashed the bones of St. Peter and St. Paul. The same way they trashed the bones of Jonah over in Nineveh that had existed from 700 BC up until three months ago. And ISIS went in there and blew them up. Anyway, so they trashed the bones of St. Peter and St. Paul. It was after that that. Pope Leo decided to build a wall around the church, and they turned it, called it Vatican City. But, um, and then the Muslims enslaved an estimated 180 million Africans. And they, you know, sell them into the sex trafficking and the slave trade, and it went on for centuries. They had slavery in Africa eight centuries before America was ever discovered. And um, anyway, then once America was discovered, the Spaniards enslaved the Native Americans, and it, there was a Catholic priest named Bartolome de las Casas, who's contemporary of Martin Luther. When Martin Luther was doing the Reformation over there, Bartolome de las Casas spent his whole life trying to get the king of Spain to outlaw the enslavement of the Native Americans. When he was finally successful, no sooner did they stop cheering than the rich Spanish landlords decided they were going to replace them by buying slaves from the Muslim slave markets in Africa. So virtually every African that was brought to America as a slave was purchased at a Muslim slave market. Anyway, even David Livingston, the Scottish missionary from the Congo, writes in his journal that when he went as a missionary, he would stumble in the jungle across a path of Africans tied together, walking single file 500 miles to the coast to be sold into Muslim slavery. And he says that if they walked too slow, they would just stab him or nail him to a tree. And he says you could see him where the vultures are circling. You know, that's where the slave trails were. And it still goes on today. There's actually more slavery today than at any other time in world history, and a whole lot of it is in Muslim countries, Mauritania, Niger, Sudan, and forced marriages and uh, sex trafficking and so forth. Anyway, so uh, nice encouraging message, isn't it? Um, but I'm going to share some, bar- some battles that we do win, so, so hang on. So uh, then the Muslims attack Constantinople, which was the capital of Europe. When Rome fell, right, 476 A.D., it lasted another 1,000 years. So the Greek defenders of Constantinople that were Christian, they used Greek fire. This is oil and sawdust. They mixed it in brass containers, sort of made it like a napalm, and they sprayed it out of these hot oil cannons, and it stopped the Muslims and saved Constantinople. Well, people say, and I've talked to college students, well, yeah, you've been talking about Muslims killing people, but Christians kill people too. What about the Crusades? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's talk about that. That is the Turkish Spring. So a group of people called Turks converted to Islam. Seljuk Turks, and then the Ottoman Turks. And they invaded into the Byzantine Empire. Now, the most popular religion in the world is Christianity. Did you know that? Around 32% of the world's Christian. The second largest religion in the world is Islam. And so rather than compare followers, you're always going to have followers. Let's compare the founders. You know, if your computer acts up, what do you do? You reload the software the way it was when it came from the factory. So if your religion acts up, you go back to the way it was when it left the founder. And so let's compare the founders of the two largest religions in the world. 
Jesus never killed anyone. Muhammad killed an estimated 3,000 people, including cutting off the heads of those 700 Jews in Medina. Jesus never owned slaves. Muhammad got, uh, or, or, or Jesus never led armies. Muhammad did. Jesus never owned slaves. Muhammad got a fifth of the slaves taken in battle. Jesus never married. Muhammad had anywhere from 11 to 22 wives. His youngest was six years old. Jesus never tortured anyone. When Muhammad conquered Kaibar, the last Jewish settlement in Arabia, the Jewish chief refused to tell where the tribe's treasure was hidden in the desert. Muhammad had him stretched out on the ground, and they kindled a fire on his chest to try to get him to tell where the treasure was. Jesus never lied. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Muhammad permitted lying. It's called takiyah, sacred lying. There's a story where there was a warrior who was captured and forced to renounce Muhammad. He escaped and went back to Muhammad, and Muhammad forgave him and said, if they make you turn, turn, but don't turn in your heart. In other words, it's okay to lie in a pinch to save your skin as long as you don't fight against Islam. In other, it's, in other words, it's okay to say you're not a Muslim in order to get elected, but then everything you do once you're elected is to help advance Islam. Um, Jesus never forced anyone to follow him. Jesus said something difficult. Many disciples walked with him no more. He didn't go after him with a sword. He just turns to Peter and says, you're going to go too? Peter said, where else can we go? You're the only one with the words of eternal life. But Jesus was willing to let him go. Muhammad said, whoever changes his Islamic religion, kill him. It's called the Rida laws, the apostasy laws, and they're in effect today, and they teach it at every mosque. Um, Jesus uh, forgave insults, dying on the cross, saying, Father, forgive him. Muhammad avenged insults. There was a guy named Ibn Qatal who made up poems making fun of Muhammad and had two slave girls reciting the poems, and they were funny, and Muhammad was insulted, so he ordered them murdered. So the idea of if you insult the prophet, you get killed, goes all the way back to the prophet. And Jesus did not permit his disciples to rape anyone. Duh. Muhammad did. And there's all these hadiths that talk about how to do it. Uh, none of the apostles were governors or generals. Every one of the caliphs and sultans were governors and generals. Jesus taught God was our father. In Islam, it's blasphemy to call Allah your father. Jesus taught we're children of God. In Islam, it's blasphemy to call yourself a child of Allah, because Allah took no wife and has no son. Jesus taught we're made in the image of God. In Islam, Allah has no image. Jesus taught to have a personal relationship with God. And Muhammad, in Islam, it's blasphemy to even want to have a personal relationship with Allah, because he is transcendent and unknowable. The first three centuries of Christianity, there are ten major persecutions. Christians are thrown to the lions. The first three centuries of Islam, they conquer from Arabia to Paris. And the people say, well, I'll worship the same God. Well, Christians say you have to believe in Jesus to go up. In Islam, they have an unforgivable sin called shirk. And they say if you believe in Jesus, you're condemned to hell. So question, how can the same God say if you believe in Jesus, you go up, and if you believe in Jesus, you go down? Either God is schizophrenic, or we're talking about two different gods. Anyway... Uh, the Muslims then invade into what is today Turkey. This used to be the Byzantine Christian Empire. All seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation were wiped out by the Muslims. Ephesus, Colossae, Galatia, Thyatira. And as the Greek Christians fled, they, uh, uh, they fled to Florence, Italy. Um, now, it's interesting. Do you know who the most popular Greek saint was? The most popular Greek saint was St. Nicholas. He lived during Roman times, gave to the poor, and these Greeks would give presents to each other on the anniversary of his death, December 6, 343 A.D. And so this was a Greek tradition. 
And then the Muslims invaded, and just like they destroyed the bones of Jonah after 2,700 years, they were invading Greece, and the Christians didn't want the bones of their St. Nicholas destroyed. And so in the year 1087, they moved the bones of St. Nicholas to Italy. And they built a cathedral, and all the traditions of gift-giving caught on, and it was eventually the Dutch immigrants that brought them to New Amsterdam, and the Dutch pronounced St. Nicholas St. Nicholas or Santa Claus. So we would not have a Santa Claus over here if it had not been for a jihad in 1087 over there. That would make for an interesting Christmas story. Okay, kids, go to bed. Uh, Santa's coming. And so, um, so anyway, so the Greeks thought they were the true Christians because they spoke Greek, the language of the New Testament, and their land was where John spoke and Paul spoke. They viewed the Catholic West as the church split. So it was a big humbling of the Greek Byzantine emperor's pride to beg the West for help. And so the Pope Urban II goes to the Consul of Claremont, talks to these French kings, and says, okay, lay aside your differences, leave the 99, and go after the one and help out these Greek Christians. Sort of like we're hearing stories of Christians being killed in Egypt and in Africa, Nigeria, and the Middle East, and what are we doing? Sort of nothing. Maybe sending out a tweet, you know? And, um, and so finally the European says, okay, okay, enough. We'll go there and help. And that's the crusade. So there's nine major crusades in 200 years. The first takes back Jerusalem for 100 years. Um, Richard the Lionheart leads the third crusade. Do you know who he left in charge of England? His brother, King John, and the Sherwood Forest, and the Taxes, and the Nottingham, and who? Robin Hood. So the Robin Hood story takes place during the third crusade. And I live in a city named after the guy that led the seventh and eighth crusades, St. Louis. St. Louis was the king of France, King Louis IX, the most powerful monarch in Europe, and he led the Seventh and Eighth Crusades against the Muslims. But when the Crusades finally end, the Muslims pick up where they left off, and they invade into Eastern Europe. And so in the year 1300, they control Spain, North Africa, the Zanzibar, goes Madagascar, over to Indonesia, the northern bug halls in India, Central Asia, the Middle East, and then into Eastern Europe. And they invade Serbia. And then finally, by 1450, this is what's left the purple of the great Byzantine Empire. And the Ottoman Muslims are on both sides. And what are these green and brown? Those are Venetian and Genoan merchants who are selling military goods to the Muslims for a buck, knowing that they're going to turn around using them to kill Christians. So you have financial interests in the West betraying the West to Islam for money. Sort of like maybe doing business with the Saudi oil money or maybe selling your television network to Al Jazeera for money. Familiar with Okay, uh, that was Al Gore. Um, so uh, finally, Mammoth II sent over his navy, sent over his army. What is that thing? They took the church bells from the Greek Orthodox churches, melted them into cannons. This was the largest cannon in the world that the Muslims used to shoot against the Christian defenders. So today, they, instead of, they want the largest cannon in the world, but they want nuclear power instead of gunpowder. Finally, Constantinople falls to the Muslims. They take the largest Christian church in the world for a thousand years, turn it into a mosque. And it's Hagia Sophia. And, uh, but this is important. There used to be trade from Rome over to the Han Empire in China in the first century. Even Marco Polo in 1271 leaves Venice, Italy, and goes all the way to China and works for Kublai Khan, the grandson of Genghis Khan. And Marco Polo brings back to Europe spaghetti, coal, these burning rocks. Um, uh, talks about the Chinese having thread from worms, silkworms. Talks about the Chinese having gunpowder. Talked about the Chinese inventing paper currency. If you have paper currency in your wallet, it was the Chinese that invented that. Marco Polo was amazed. You could buy all the stuff with a piece of paper. 
Unfortunately, they printed too much of it, and that sort of contributed to their empire collapsing. But the Chinese were technologically superior. They actually had plates that were made out of China. We call it China because it came from China. And so India had teas, dyes, and spices, and so the Europeans wanted to trade. But when the Muslims conquered Constantinople, it ended the land trade routes. And so the Europeans began to look for a sea route, and a guy named Christopher Columbus said, I know a shortcut, sail west. And so Columbus would have never set sail over here if it had not been for a jihad over there. Right? Columbus turns into some islands. He thinks he's in India, so he names the people Indians. Think of it. We never would have called Native Americans Indians if it had not been for Islamic jihad, the Islamic state. Right? Setting up. Anyway, so as the Muslims invaded Greece, uh, the Greek scholars fled to Italy, and they brought their Greek art, architecture, and literature over to Italy. And so there's this reinterest in Greek stuff that we call the Renaissance. So the Dark Ages started when they conquered Egypt, held back the papyrus. The Renaissance started when they invaded Greece, and the Greek scholars fled. But the Greek scholars also brought their scriptures, their Greek New Testaments, and these got, got to be translated, and this laid the foundation for the Reformation. So the Reformation in 1517, Martin Luther starts, but in 1529, 100,000 Muslims surround Vienna, Austria, under Suleiman the Magnificent. And um, anyway, Martin Luther says, The Turk is the rod of the wrath of the Lord our God. If the Turk's God, the devil is not beaten first, there is reason to fear the Turk will not be so easy to beat. The fight against the Turk must begin with repentance. We must reform our lives, or we shall fight in vain. And um, John Calvin says, I hear the sad condition of your Germany. The Turk again prepares to wage war with a larger force. Who will stand up and oppose this marching throughout the land and his new will and pleasure? John Wesley, ever since the religion of Islam appeared in the world, the spouses of it have been as wolves and tigers to all of the nations. Anyway, Charles V of Spain is the Holy Roman Emperor, and so he controls this huge area. So the Muslims have their sultan, the, um, uh, the sultan, Suleiman the Magnificent, but the West is Spain. They controlled Spanish Netherlands, Italy, Austria, Hungary, and all the Americas and the Philippines, named after King Philip of Spain. And so Charles V is a Catholic. And from his point of view, yeah, there's a double dilemma. There's Protestant Reformation on one side and the uh, Muslim invasion on the other side. So he strikes a deal with the Protestants. It's the first treaty to recognize Protestants. It's called the Peace of Augsburg of 1555. There's a little Latin phrase that says... Um, Curios regio vius religio, which means whose is the reign, his is the religion. So in other words, believe what you want in your kingdom. Let's just work together against the Muslims. And it starts a domino effect where the different countries of Europe believe different things. Lutheran, Calvinist, Presbyterian, the Holland was Dutch reform. And if you didn't believe the way your king did, you were persecuted and you fled. And so in the 1600s, there was this mass migration of Christians shifting around Europe for conscience sake. And those were the ones that spilled over and founded colonies in America. Anyway, I'm going to fast forward by some stuff. Uh, every colony in America was started by a different Christian denomination. But um, I'm going to end with uh, a little bit of some, some battles here. So um, in 1565, 40,000 Muslims surround Malta, a little island in the Mediterranean. And there's only 1,000 defenders led by this 70-year-old guy, Jean Lavalette. And he tells his men that this is a battle between the Quran and the Gospels, and he rallies them, and they defeat the Muslims on when? September 11, 1565. And then the Muslims invade Hungary and uh, Prince John of Savoy defeats 30,000, kills 30,000 Muslims at the Battle of Zenta, September 11, 1697. But the big battle in 1683, the same year William Penn's founding Pennsylvania, 200,000 Muslims surround Vienna, Austria. And the Polish king, Jan Sobieski, comes to Vienna's rescue on September 11, 1683. He leads the largest cavalry charge in world history to that date, 40,000 Polish hussar horses and this Polish cavalry, and they had made wings for their back. You know how 
soldiers will put horns on their helmets to look up. They made these wings. And when they charged down the hillside, 40,000 of these wings made this thunderous noise. Woo, 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 woo. And it scares the Muslims. They drop their weapons and flee. And Jan Sobieski is considered the savior of Western civilization. And when he goes into the abandoned Muslim tents, they find these bags of beans, coffee beans, and realizes this was this new Muslim drink that allowed him to fight day and night. And shortly thereafter, the Polish general, George Bronkowski, opens the first Vienna coffee house. <laughs> now, they weren't sure if they should drink coffee because it was the Muslim's drink. So they took a cup of it to Pope Clement, and he tasted it and said, this is too good to leave for the Muslims. Let's baptize it. And then coffee spread across Europe. Now, the word coffee comes from the Arabic word kafir, which means infidel. Because the beans came from Ethiopia, which was the one African country to stay Christian. So the Muslims called the Christians in Ethiopia kafirs or infidels. And since the beans came from Ethiopia, they called it the kafir bean or the infidel bean. So have you had your cup of infidel today? <laughs> but it's okay to drink. Pope Clement said so. Now, the, um, the, the bakers in Vienna were up early cooking bread, and they heard noise under the ground. They told the soldiers it was a tunnel. The Muslims were tunneling under the walls. And so the soldiers blow up the tunnel. Afterwards, they were going to reward the baker. And he said, I don't need a reward. Just give me the sole permission to cook a pastry in the shape of the Muslim crescent. And it was called the croissant, the crescent roll. And so the next time you have coffee and croissants, you can celebrate the victory of the Battle of Vienna, September 11th, 1683. Well, I'm going to pause with that. The rest of it's in my book and in my DVDs. And I wanted to bring out how good the good Lord decides when we're going to live our life on the earth. And he chose for you to be alive right now. And he's got a plan to use you. And one of the things I've seen is God always loves to wait until things look hopeless. And then he raises up little nobodies with faith and courage. And so he's raising you up. He's raised up Pastor Gary. He, he considers you his star player. And so he's given you his word. He's given you his Holy Spirit. He's given you such a tremendous church and such a tremendous pastor. God has given you everything. And this is a time for you to be those leaders that God wants to raise up. So it, and, and then I also like to point out how someday you're going to be dead. Sort of a nice Sunday morning thought, you know. But you're going to be in heaven because you believe that Jesus died for your sins. And I was reading through the book of Genesis, and every time I read through it, I catch something new that I missed before. So I'm thinking of Adam and Eve sinning and then hiding from God. Have you ever talked about somebody behind their back and maybe made fun of them and joked about them and lied about them, and then all of a sudden that person walks through the door? They've not seen you yet. Are you drawn to immediately go over there, give them a hug, or do you like, ah, there they are. Oh, oh there's a side door, I'm going to speak out. What if it's somebody you owe money to? a lot of money to, and you don't have money to pay, and they walk through the door. What is, what's your tendency? Uh, they haven't seen me. I'm going to speak out. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, their own conscience made them want to hide. You know, it's not so much God sending people to hell. It's when people sin, their own conscience won't let them go to heaven. When you've sinned against God, your own conscience says, ah, I've sinned against him. I, I'm afraid. I don't want to come into his presence. Right, sort of like a magnet that turns the wrong way, and no matter how hard you push them, they just won't hit. Your conscience doesn't. And so as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing they did was what? I've got to make it up to God. I've got to do something. And so they made fig leaves. And God shows up and says, fig leaves aren't going to do it. And God made what? Coats of skin for Adam and Eve. You've read that, haven't you? 
question, how do you make a coat of skin? I think something has to die. Do you think God killed it on the other side of the garden and brought him some nice tailored outfits? Or do you think maybe he killed the animal right in front of them and they witnessed the first death ever and they realized that we did the wrong thing, but this animal's paying for it. And then God strips the skin off of that animal and maybe it still has some blood on it and he puts it on them. And God's making it really clear. This thing died and you're wearing its skin, now we can talk. Now we can have a relationship. And for the rest of their lives, Adam and Eve are walking around wearing the skin of that animal. And whenever God sees them, God sees them, but he sees them clothed with the skin of the lamb. And whenever they approach God, they're approaching God wearing the skin of the lamb. And so Adam and Eve tell their sons Cain and Abel. And Cain decides he's going to worship God, but he does a branch off of the church of the fig leaves, and he starts the church of the fruits and the nuts. In other words, it's works. When Adam sinned, God, God said, the ground is cursed for your sake and you'll bring forth fruit by the sweat of your brow. So when Cain brought forth works of the field, this was the work. And he was trying to work his way into God's presence. And Abel does the coat of skin thing. He says, I don't, know, I don't know how it happens here, but I'm on one side. God's on the other side. My sins separate me from God. And this lamb is going to die and pay for my sin and reunite me into fellowship with God. And so the Abraham sacrifices a lamb. Moses sacrifices a lamb. David sacrifices a lamb. Solomon sacrifices a thousand of them, right? And finally Jesus shows up, and John the Baptist points at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. So are you approaching God as Cain or as Abel? Are you approaching God with your works? Are you approaching God saying, I'm worthless, this animal, this, this lamb, this innocent animal is, is dying in my place, right? And I'm wearing his skin. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm approaching God because of the righteousness of the lamb. And so here we are today. You're going to be in heaven because you believe that Jesus died in your place as your substitute, and you're approaching God in the name of Jesus, the blood of the lamb. And so when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, with no less days to sing his praise than when we just begun. Imagine you've been in heaven 10,000 years and you get a chance to meet Moses. That'd be pretty neat. Walking the streets of gold to meet Moses. Maybe Moses will invite you over to his place. I don't know what it's like in heaven, but I bet Moses will have a pretty nice place. He'll probably have one of those big fireplaces where the logs don't burn out. Get it? The burning bush didn't burn up in the wilderness and the logs in the fireplace didn't. And um, I heard someone say, in heaven you'll travel as fast as you think. And I'll probably show up late. My wife will say, where were you? I'll think about something else. But imagine being there, and you're in Moses' living room. Maybe he's got a big one like today. And maybe he's sitting right in front of you. And you reach over and tap him on the shoulder and say, what was it like? I mean, I saw the, read the book and saw the movie. But here you are in person. And Moses will stand up and he'll say, I was 80 years old. And Pharaoh, the most powerful military leader in the world, was charging in at us. And we were unarmed. And I just held up my staff, and I said, God, use me to deliver your people. And the waves came in and swallowed up Pharaoh's chariots. We're going to say, wow. Then we're going to look around the room and see David. Say, David, tell us your story. And he'll stand up and say, I was 17 years old, and this thug, Goliath, was mocking our God and making fun of our faith, and, and the grown-ups were too chicken to do anything about it. And I said, well, enough of them. I'm going to do something. I took my little sling and hit him in the head and took his own sword and chopped his head off. We're going to say, wow. Then one by one, we're going to have Gideon tell his story, and Deborah tell her story, and the Apostle Paul. Everybody's going to tell all these great stories, and then everybody's going to look at you. 
that we haven't heard from you yet. Tell us your story. What did you do when it was your turn to be on earth? What were they saying about God in your country? Or the baby that the Lord knew in the mother's womb, or the Ten Commandments that God gave to, you know, to Moses, or marriage that God himself instituted in Genesis, or, or when pastor had a vision to reach out to the community. Or what did you do when you were backstabbed by all your Christian friends and you were about to give up on everything, but you just kept your eyes on Jesus and just kept trusting in him? That little thread of trust turned into a, a rope and a cable, and finally the blessings of God came back in your life. You know, I hate for any of us to be up there and the Lord have a screen come down and show all kinds of great things and say, this is what you could have done if you'd have been just a little more sold out to me. And realize you can't go back to earth and do anything for Jesus because you're already in heaven because you believe he died as the lamb in your place. But guess what? You're still on this earth. You still have feet the trodden soil. You can still do those things that you will be known for forever. This is an exciting time to be alive. And what, what do we see? The stories we like are the ones where God lets it get hopeless, and then he raises up little nobodies to do big things. But look at Gideon, 100,000 Midianites. He's got 30,000, and God says, tell everyone that's scared to go home. <laughs> whittles it down, still too many. Tell them to drink from a creek, and whittles it down to 300. God says, okay, I can do it now. God loves it when the odds look hopeless, but when people of faith and courage rise up. I'm going to end with that, and I'm going to turn it back over to Pastor. God bless you. Thank you so much. Okay, that's The Real Truth of Islam by William Federer. Notice he ended it on Gideon and about war and battle. And it talks about works. And one breath says you don't need to have works, and the next breath says, well, what are you going to do for Christ? <laughs> people what you just listened to was a fine example a Jesuit sophistry and casuistry what is the definition of Jesuit sophistry reasoning that appears sound but is misleading or fallacious wisdom in appearance only Uh, let's see how we can this is Wikipedia another one was from the dictionary I can say okay um, causatry is a method of applied ethics in jurisprudence often characterized by critiques of principles and rule based on reasoning, where causatory is derived from the Latin word causus, which means case. Causatory is a reasoning used by resolve moral problems by extracting or extending theoretical rules for particular instances and applying these rules to new institutions. The term is commonly used as a prerogative to criticize the use of clever but unsound reasoning, allegedly implicitly, implicitly the inconsistent or outright suspicious misapplications of rules to instance, especially in relation to moral questions. Um, 
The term can be used either to describe the presumably acceptable form of reasoning or a form of reasoning that is inherently unsound and deceptive. Oxford Dictionary states that the word often perhaps originally applied to quibbling or evasive way of dealing with the difficult cases of duty. Um, The principle of the basin approach to Mike claim that lying is always morally wrong. Causes would argue that depending upon the details of the case, mine might or might be not be illegal or unethical. Okay, back to sophistry. Sophistry, reasoning that appears sound but is misleading or fallacious. Now let's look at this with the gentleman, some of the points you brought up, and I didn't go down all of them. But the first one I brought up was works. And of course, he's a Roman Catholic, the most work-based religion there ever was. But he says there's no, there's no need for works. First, he brings up Muhammad's Kadusha's wife, but doesn't bring up any of the Roman Catholic connections that she has. Uh, does a great job of explaining the Trinity, but that's a great way also of disarming the public, the audience, Uh, talks about the caravans uh, that uh, <clears throat> Muhammad used and how they used to rob and pillage, but nothing doesn't mention anything about Rome's responsibility for robbing and pillaging for a lot longer than actually Islam. By the way, I'm not defending Islam at all. Hope you realize that I'm trying to explain to you and share with you what you listened to was Jesuit sophistry. Cossetry, and that what you heard was a little bit of truth with a whole bunch of error and lies and manipulation. Very good. He's very good at it. Talks about how Islam is a political and religious and military institution, but does not mention the fact that Roman Catholicism is the same thing. Uh, it talks about uh, the Supreme, Supreme Court mentions the Supreme Court has a, a picture of uh, Muhammad with uh, his sword there. Yet, doesn't go into any detail more about the fact of all the autocracy and other hypocritical images there that relate to Rome. Mentions 250 Catholic dioceses in North Africa and during the time and when uh, the uh, Muhammad and Islam was being created, uh, and somehow it's, it gives you the impression that that's being Christian. Mentions that the two largest religions are Christian and uh, is Islam, but does not distinguish between what Catholics are and what biblical Christians are, and that they are completely different. Uh, 
he talks an awful lot about Islam, obviously, but doesn't talk anything about papery and what their involvement in slavery was about. Uh, their use of, of torture, murder, ensla- enslavement, um, the killing of uh, the saints, the many, 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 many millions of people that Rome killed. Doesn't mention anything about that. Uh, one of the most insidious things I saw when he did it was compared Muhammad to Jesus. Now, Muhammad is more like the papacy and nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus, as he mentioned in the Trinity, is being God, the Son of God. Uh, Muhammad is not that, nor is the papacy. The true connection, the true, the way, if you were to really honestly look at what Ben was saying and see how he just del- deliberately misled everybody, comparing God with Muhammad. Muhammad has much more, has all things in common with the papacy and nothing with God. Uh, Also brings up Nicholas. Of course, this guy, as we mentioned earlier, is a big promoter of Christmas and how it's a legit holiday, a Christian holiday. Of course, anybody really researches realizes it's not a Christian holiday. It's a pagan Catholic holiday. But talks about how St. Nicholas, the, the I guess it was number one saint in the Byzantine Empire, had his bones removed and taken to Rome. Necromancy. Something else you're not supposed to do if you're a a, a true follower of Christ. Um, Of course, he mentioned many, 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 many more things and all I would suggest is that you never you listen to a man like that. First, check out their their history. Who do who, who they really represent, most likely? And then go from there. Then challenge anything that the man says. Is it consistent with history, with the Bible? Talks about um, also about uh, Islam, how it uh, says it's a, a religion of peace, and there will be world peace when everyone converts to Islam. Is that any different than Catholicism? Isn't that the new world order is about? Isn't that the reason why they're sending us uh, our our youth over there to die for their war, the war of attrition, where at the end. The annihilation of the Jews, Islam, and biblical Christians, and what who will triumph? What has been the goal all along? Rome, the papacy, will triumph. Once again, sophistry, reasoning that, that appears sound but is misleading and fallacious. Really question what you're hearing from people. You know what? The man did a great job. He does. He's a fine example of Jesuit sophistry. And, uh, okay, let's look a little bit at this before we end about the Manhattan Declaration and Roman Catholic agenda embedded in the Manhattan agenda. At her notes, Richard Bennett is the president and founder of Berean Beacons Ministry website. Okay. 
the original uh, 152 signers, over 100 are evangelicals, including Daniel Akins, president of Southeast Baptist Theology Seminary, Randy Elkhorn, founder and director of the Eternal Perspective Ministries, Lee Leith Anderson, president of the National Association of Evangelicals, uh, K. Arthur, CEO and co-founder of the Precept Ministries International, Dr. Mark Bailey, President Dallas of Theological Seminary in Dallas, Ken Boa, President Reflections Ministries, Jim Daly, President and CEO of Focus on the Family, Dr. James Dawson, Founder of Focus on the Family, David Duckery, President of Union University, James T. Daber, Junior President of Emerus, Way of Life, Reverend Jonathan Falwell, Thomas Road Baptist Church, William J. Fitterner, President Amera Research, Inc., Cameron Fowler, President and Executive of the Presbyterian Lay Community, Thomas Gilson, Director of Strategic Processes, Campus Crusade for Christ International, Dr. William uh, Grundem, Research Professor of Theological and Biblical Studies, Phoenix Seminary, Dr. Dennis Hollinger, President and Professor of Christian Ethics, Gordon Conwell, Theological Seminary, Dr. John A. Huffman, Junior Senior Pastor of St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church and Chairman of the Board of Christian Today International, Jerry Jenkins. Jerry uh, is the uh, chairman of the Board of Trustees, Booty Bible Institute. Dr. Richard Land, President of Ethics and Religious Liberty Commissions of SBC. Dr. Uh, Dwayne Lipsitten, President of Wheaton College. Josh McDonwell, founder of Josh McDowell's Ministries. Alex McFarland, president of the South Southern Evangelical Seminaries, Dr. Albert Millar, Jr., president of the South Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Dr. Russell D. Moore, senior vice president of the Academic Administration and Dean of Schools of Theology, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, David Niff, co-editor of the Christian Today, Christianity Today, excuse me, Dennis Rainey, President and CEO and co-founder of Family Life. Dr. Ron Sire, Director of Evangelical Social Actions. Dr. David Stevens, CEO of Christian uh, Medical and Dental Association. John Stone Street, Executive Director, uh, Summit Ministries. Joni Erickson. Taba, founder and CEO of Joni and Friends International Disability Center. Dr. Timothy C. Tennant, president of Ashbury Theological Seminary. Dr. Graham Walker, uh, president Patrick Henry College. Parker T. Williamson, editor at Emerus and senior correspondent of the Presbyterian Lake Committee. Dr. John Woodbridge, Research Professor of the Church History and Our History of Christian Thought, 
Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Dr. Frank Wright, President of National Religious Broadcasters, Paul Young, COO and Executive of, I think it's supposed to be CEO and Executive Vice President, Christian Research Institute. Many of the evangelical signers were men in reformed denominations or institutions, including Joel Betts, Bell, Bells, founder of World Magazine, Steve Brown, National uh, Radio Broadcast, K Life, Dr. Robert C. Canada Jr., Chancellor and CEO, Reformed Theology Seminary, Orlando, Dr. Brian Chapel, President, Covenant Theology Seminary, Dr. William. Edgard Professor Westminster Theology uh, Seminary, Philadelphia, Reverend Tim Keller, Senior Pastor and Redeemer, uh, Presbyterian Church, New York, Dr. Peter Lilbeck, President, Providence Forum, uh, Neil Nelson, President of Covenant College, Marvin Oleski, Editor-in-Chief of the World Magazine, and Provost, Provost, uh, King's College, Dr. J.I. Packer, Board of Governors and Professor of Theology, Regent College, Dr. Cornelius um, Plantina, uh, President Calvin Theological Seminary, Dr. J. Lingon Dukan, the third President, Alliance of Confessing Evangelical Chair uh, of Together for the Gospel uh, and Coalition <clears throat> Rabbi Zacharias, founder and chairman of the board, Zacharias International Ministries. Hold on a second, folks. Okay, sorry about that pause. Some of the signatures have already faced criticism and have pub have published their own justification for why they signed. These include Joe Bells, Brian Champel, uh, Liga Duncan, Albert Moeller, Neil Nelson, and Rabbi Zacharias. Gave his justification on the radio broadcast. Some prominent leaders have written their own statements on why they did not signed Manhattan Doctrine, including Alistair Begg, Michael Horton, John MacArthur, C.R. Sproul, James White. Sadly, some of these latter prominent leaders have sounded an uncertain sound by having a signature of Manhattan Declaration lecture at their conferences. Albert Muller spoke at Grace Community Church uh, MacArthur is the pastor. Shepherd Conference and scheduled to speak at C.R.C. Sproul's 2010 uh, Leandric, uh, what am I trying to say here? 
conference, whatever it is. I think it's supposed to be Legioner. Is that supposed to be Legioner Conference? That's supposed to be. Anyways, on this whole matter of signing the ecumenical statements, please see John Robbins signing the ecumenical declaration, Trinity Reviewed Gate. Or a Roman Catholic dual purpose behind the declaration. On November 20th, 2009, more than 150 people portraying themselves as Christian leaders of the Orthodox Church. <clears throat> now what? Oh. Oh, you're listening to me. I didn't know anybody was listening to me. <sighs> okay. Okay, the 140 uh, people portraying themselves as Christian leaders and Orthodox Catholic evangelical background declared a unity because because of moral issues. A signer who are uniting themselves together with the Manhattan Declaration identify themselves under the signed statement, we are Orthodox, Catholic, or Evangelical Christians who have united at this hour to reaffirm fundamental truths and justice and common good. The uh, website of the Manhattan Declaration uh, states that the purpose of the document is simply to speak with one voice on the most pressing moral issues of our day. Manhattan Declaration is simply a statement of solidarity about only the social issues it addresses, and the document itself may not appear to have any objective uh, other than quoted. However, under the website section entitled Message of All Signers of the Manhattan Declaration, <clears throat> the clearly stated purpose is called for the political movement. This is show the fact that, in fact, the Manhattan Declaration is only the latest step downgrade into the implementing Catholic social doctrine. There is yet another purpose, I primary, primarily stated by the Vatican II Council and the post-Vatican Council II documents. Through the use of the social issues, the Roman Catholic Church seeks to draw true evangelical Bible believers into itself so that there can be no opposition to them on fundamental issues of the authority of the Bible alone and the Gospel alone. So uh, let's, let's go out here. Let's look here. Man. Let's see. Where are we at here? Sorry about the pause here, folks. Manhattan deck. Where well, that's really Manhattan Declaration. Okay.
Trevor the boss, folks. Okay. So anyways, um, well, someone feels that uh, not all those people signed the, the, the declaration. I don't know. Um, I find that uh, Richard Burton is pretty a pretty reliable source and I don't know I guess we double check and see maybe there are some people who are falsely accused one thing is for, I'm pretty confident is that William J uh, or yeah William J Federer was one of those signers and he is definitely a Roman Catholic at this point he has to deny it so, it says here, in order to soften up the evangelicals and their separation from the Catholics and the biblical doctrine issues, particularly the uh, authority of uh, the Bible alone and the gospel, the Catholic modus operandi calls for the use of social issues on which both evangelicals and Catholics agree as primary common ground, preliminary common ground. The major social issues select, uh, selected uh, by the Manhattan Declaration are acceptable, but what gives away the underlying Catholic far-left political agenda is some of the vocabulary use. This vocabulary has been uh, generally a general meaning, to be sure, but in the context of Roman Catholic social doctrine, it means something quite specific. As evangelicals are drawn together with uh, Catholics and social issues, like the social issues of the meditation mentioned excuse me, in this document, uh, the ensuing uh, ecumenical dialogue deserves uh, to transfer modes of thought and behavior in a daily life of their evangelical communities, churches. In this way, it, it ecumenical dialogue aims at preparing the way for their unity of faith in the bosom of, of a church one and, and visible. Thus, little by little, all Christians will be gathered into the Roman Catholic Church state, which its dual authority-based false gospel and accompanying far-left agenda, the Roman Catholic Church state primary goal, <clears throat> state's pri primary goal is to make enforceable its claim that it is the only true Church of Jesus Christ and its Pope. They claim the Vicar of Christ has a right to judge everybody as he did during the Middle Ages. In order to accomplish this, the papacy must do away with the supreme authority of the Bible and the Gospel and must silence all who stand against it, 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 it in its endeavors. This is the Roman Catholic context in which the Manhattan Doctrine is set. This is ambiguous preamble. Ambiguous Preamble 4. And then it goes, Timothy George Maynard Compromises. Roman Catholic Church History, Whitewashed. Another of the major compromises of the t to which Timothy George bowed regarded to the history of the 
Christians in the Roman Catholic Church state, the historical fact of the Roman Catholic Church state centuries of inquisitions. This whole thing is a show in itself, folks. I'm going to have to actually now go through this this rabbit uh, trail, buddy trail, and rabbit hole, and. Um, yeah, but I'll read this little bit here just for a little bit for context. But uh, yeah, so the historical facts of the Roman Catholic Church state centuries of inquisitions against millions of Bible believers and others cannot be airbrushed away with a brief statement that the Inquisition have been mistakes, as the Manhattan Declaration tries to do. Neither can it can the drafters, by claiming to speak exclusively as individuals. Uh, ex- exonerate themselves from this outra- outrage. Most important part of the pre- uh, preamble summary on Christian history is what it fails to say. And I think we're going to have to actually read this thing now. This is something I had no idea anything about. Did you? I had nothing. I had no idea. I imagine those probably with the seminary and those that. Uh, uh, anyways, you can find this on Trinity, trinityfoundation.org. And um, and um, yeah, I think we're going to have to go through this. That could probably be the next show is talking about this. Um. And, uh, yeah, there's some interesting... Inter- oh, my goodness, this is really quite a bit of information. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so here we have another element to all this. We, uh, I mean, we got the CNP. Now we got this uh, Manhattan Doctrine. We got all these different little tools, if you will, to um, usurp Protestantism and true Christianity and try to bring people back into the uh, mother church, that would be the, the Roman Catholic Church. You look at the, the process of using Jesuit uh, sophistry and casistry, which I think I just demonstrated was a fine example with what the William J. Furter did <clears throat> in uh, The Real Truth of Islam. And, um, you know, mixing truth to there and Problem is, most of us will never spend the time to question these things, and and actually, you know, we just watch something and say that's it, or what, I listen to somebody and say that's it. Um, and unfortunately, we need to do more than that. So then we also we looked at uh, once again Walid Shabbat and his uh, whole charade and his uh, deception. So. And then also that we looked at what's going on in Sarajevo and um, what the papacy just did recently and giving this uh, known Nazi criminal a medal. <laughs> Which just goes back just to ask yourself the question, is the papacy really... Has this really changed? Or is it just as it always has been, a chameleon that changes its colors? to hide itself, to to, uh, conceal its true agenda. Once again, I'm not defending Islam at all. 
it's a false religion as well, in my opinion. And as wicked as is just as wicked as uh Rome, Roman Catholicism and all the other false religions out there. Which their intentions are to keep you from knowing the true and living God and to enslave you. So, but now we've got to do some more research on this Manhattan Declaration, because goodness gracious, looks like an awful lot of evangelicals, one way or the other, signed it and supported it. And uh, uh, there's so many things going on there, folks. It's just amazing. It's mind-boggling. But the biggest thing is, why do I do this? I do this because to forewarn you when you try to join any of these groups, that you think, first and foremost, you weigh out the facts and the evidence, and you do question your leaders, your pastors, your priests, uh, your reverends, which, by the way, you shouldn't call anybody a reverend either anymore. Then you probably should call them a rabbi. Um, so, uh, yeah, I will probably have to do now part two later on today on this uh, Trinity uh, read from this trinityfoundation.org and the Manhattan Declaration, which I knew very little about until recently. The more and more I'm learning about this, the more and more I'm going, my goodness, there's some sketchy things going on here. Once again. Anyways. God bless and take care. Bye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.